Our great friends over at FerryBox have been supporting us on Forging Brains for a while now. Since the time that they have sponsored the show, we have received many great products that I wouldn't have thought about buying, or because I was being a tight ass. But they were sent to me in their subscription box, and now I use those products in my day-to-day practice. Each box is sent bi-monthly, and in those boxes is an array of the top tools and products that have been tested by the greats in our industry. So go to www.fairybox.com and use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's order. You won't be disappointed, I'll tell you that. Let's talk about our newest sponsor of Forge and Brains Podcast, Yukon Forge. If you're a fan of the show, then you've probably already heard the interview we did with John McNerney and all the badass things he's accomplished in his career, as well as the type of character this man has. John's graciously offering you guys 10% off on anything you order when you go to www.yukonforge.com and use code BRAINS at checkout. On his website, you'll find he has a variety of high-quality, hand-built tools made by him personally. His hoof knives are some of the best on the market. All his tongs are forged from 4140 steel to hold up to whatever you're grabbing and holding. John's been developing a new hammer out of 4140 steel that looks pretty dang sick, and I can't wait to try one. His fullers are handmade from S7, and I personally know of some that have withstood the years of hammer blows. Also, a new and unique tool John has developed is the propane nut. There's nothing worse than stripping out your propane regulator from not having the right tool. The Yukon Forge propane nut relate replaces whatever you had been using for a simple tool that you can tighten and loosen with your fingertips with ease. So go to www.yukonforge.com and use code BRAINS for 10% off your order. That's a hell of a deal, my friends. This episode is also brought to you by our fine sponsor, World Championship Blacksmiths. Ultimately, they are a business but their model is based upon help each and every one of you find and strive for the goals you set upon yourselves that most of us desperately need. Not only do they provide the competition aspect, they bring a community of people together that will have your back no matter what. So sign up for a contest and work towards those goals that you set for yourself. And you can also use code BRAINS in their online store for 10% off any merchandise. It's not including membership or contest fees. So go to www.worldchampionshipblacksmiths.com and use code BRAINS and buy yourself some merch. Thanks, everyone. I want to take a moment to tell you guys about Wellshod. And not just that they carry every item you can think of from every brand, including from the little guys. You can get some Adam Farr punches, some Ben Sneer hammers. They pretty much got it all in the hard-to-beat $10 shipping. But I also want to take a moment to talk about John himself. You see the Wellshod name at pretty much every single contest that you go to. And not only that, you see John himself there supporting what we do and investing his time. Like John's even jumped in the competition in his ring himself at some of the WCB contests. That speaks huge to me. And it also speaks huge that John wanted to support what we're doing with the podcast. They've agreed that if you guys use brains at checkout, they're gonna put a little mystery item in the box for you. So go ahead and support them, what they're doing, and it helps support us. Because in all, we're all just one community. 
Okay. Welcome everybody to another episode of Forging Brains podcast. I'm your host Riley Kirkpatrick with my co-host Gavin Cooper. Today we got an awesome guest. We got Coons. Travis Coons was nice enough to join us today out of his super busy schedule. Man, thanks, thanks Travis for carving out some time. Yeah, thank oh, you. Man. You're welcome. You're welcome, guys. It's my uh, honor and privilege to get to talk to you guys and get to talk to the old uh, Farrier family. Yeah, I man, it's always like you're a guy that's just well respected from every like angle of it because you are so good at your everyday shoeing, you're a good contest shoer. Like, so it is. I'm excited to have a bunch of people that have maybe not heard you before talk to get to know you a little bit better. So I I know you you probably got a lot to say too, but it's let's just get people to know you a little bit better. Where are you originally from, Travis? Uh, born and raised in Southern California. I was born in a little town called, uh, well, I wasn't born there, but when I was born, we lived in a little town called San Jacinto, uh, California. It was a real small town back then. Now it's almost unrecognizable. Um, growing. It, it grew like crazy, you know, and it, it's just been, that whole state's been destroyed, you yeah. know, by bad politics, but... Uh, it, it was a cool place to grow up when I was a kid, for sure. Really cool yeah. place. Do you guys and, grow and, up with horses and such? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my mom and dad both were uh, horse nuts. My dad's a horseshoer, horse trainer. Um, my mom grew up uh, running barrels and and just riding out in the hills and doing her thing. And uh, you know, we bred and raised horses and and a lot of livestock and stuff too i'm guessing quarter horses then huh uh yep quarter horses uh pretty much appendix quarters you know was was the okay yes you know horses that that had a little hotter blood and uh, had some thoroughbred in them and uh, my dad was big into roping and and then as team pinning and team sorting got popular he got into that as well um, my mom got into the they, they divorced when i was about four or five probably about five, um, went their own ways, but you know, they all eventually ended up team pinning and stuff. And so just did you grew grow up around up, rodeo. Did huh? you get into that then? Oh, oh yeah. Yep. I was, uh, uh, they couldn't keep me off the horses when I was a kid, you know, couldn't keep me out from under them. Um, you know, just every day of my childhood, like from, I, I was either like front packing it on a horse with my mom, you know, uh, she had told me she got bucked off, you know, a couple weeks before I was due, bucked off a colt, oh, no landed on her belly. Maybe it was a month, maybe. But yeah, that that explained a lot, you know. That <laughs> got got my first head trauma in the womb. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sure, we all have one or one or two of those from the yeah. from the start. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, before school ever, before I was ever old enough for school, I would just follow my mom around on this pony named Bonnie. And, uh, Bonnie. Bonnie was blind and she was my mom's pony when uh, my mom got her as, as probably like a two or three year old when my mom was a little girl. And then she, you know, broke her, trained her and, um, rode her all over, all over the place. And then I inherited her once I was, you know, ready to start riding. And, uh, you know, I just every day just following my mom on that pony, you know, out into the hills and cross fields and down the wash. And, 
you know, just loved it. And then all of a sudden I turned four. Well, she broke my spleen when I turned four. I, I was showing off to some kids. <laughs> we, had, we had some some people over having a little party, and I was out showing these kids my pony. And I told these kids, you know, how I was a rodeo cowboy. And they oh, yeah. Like, they're like, yeah, right, you're you're just a kid like us. And I go, nope, I ride bucking horses. And, uh, you know, my, my two uncles, my two of my closest uncles rode, well, three of them rode bucking horses, uh, Two of them did it for a long time, and they were, they were really, really good bareback riders. And so I, I climbed up on the fence to show these kids what's up, and and I, whist, I whistled, and Bonnie would just come to the whistle, you know. So she makes her way over, and I step on, and, you know, she is so broke. You know, I just steer her with her mane or, or with a little leg pressure. And, you know, you could go through all the gates, everything. But since I was a rodeo cowboy, I had to show these kids how to, how to mainline one. So I grabbed a main hole and laid back <laughs> on her and went to knifing her in the neck. And she took about two, two or three good licks and then just broke in two. <laughs> so <laughs> flying across, flying across the pen and I landed on the top rail on the other side, right, right across my gut and then flopped over onto my back onto the ground and, and nobody saw how I landed. They just thought I fell off, you know, in the dirt on my back, got the wind knocked out of me. So my mom comes over, takes me in the house, you know, and I'm gasping for air. And she's like, oh, you just got the wind knocked out of you again. You just, <laughs> just lay here and relax for a while and you'll be all right. And, uh, you know, they come to check on me a half hour later and I'm unresponsive and have turned completely blue, like a little smurf. Yeah, I was filled up bleeding out and they, they took me in, rushed me in the hospital and, you know, did the exploratory, cut me in half surgery and oh yeah. And it worked out good cause it was a super clean tear. The surgeon said it, it looked like it was done by a scalpel and it just lopped that spleen right in half. So Jesus. they, uh, they were able to put it back together with uh, super glue and, um, self-dissolving <laughs> stitches and then a self-dissolving, uh, cast gelatin cast. And I was lucky enough, got to keep my spleen. Far out. But it was a couple of weeks in the hospital, you know, at the age of four, right before kindergarten started. And then, uh, then once kindergarten started, like, now I had this new set of rules, you know. I couldn't roughhouse. I couldn't play. I couldn't do anything for, like, a year. Yeah, that couldn't so really be a kid. a little boy. Yeah. That, yeah. So, and so then I'm, like, placed in this prison, you know, where I can't do anything. I can't <laughs> go down the slide. I just got to, like, sit there on the bench and watch the other kids have fun. And, and I'm not allowed to ride my horse. And, man... It was a rough start. I, I hated school because of all that. Yeah, it's demoralizing. <laughs> it's it's one of those like screwy things too. You're like, man, it was like, it I like if it did go right, it was only gonna be cool for like five minutes, but it went so wrong. It was so unfucking cool for a year. So like, fast. Was, yeah, you're like that was not the way to do this. Yeah, like, that was that was a year of paying for paying for uh, you know a moment's worth of glory. Yeah, exactly. Man, we never think about that shit in the middle of it. No, you're just like, it'll no. go good. It's kind of too bad as a for the age of before boys start thinking like chicks will dig scars, you know? Like, you're not really thinking about that either. Like, you get to fifth grade and you'd be really hot shit then. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, man. It's it's one of the gnarliest scars. I, I haven't lost many scar competitions in my life. I mean, oh, they split pretty... me from below my belly button to the bottom of my my uh rib yeah, cage. Me, me and you got matching ones then 
Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah, What's same your thing. From? From, I, got ki- I got kicked in the belly by a horse, and he, like, blew up a bunch of my intestines, my spleen, my liver, my stomach. Like, yeah, he, they took a oh, bunch yeah. out. Yeah. Is, that when you're, I was, is that when you're a kid or as an adult? No, thankfully I was a little older. I was like 17, so it still sucked. Yeah. I think the worst <laughs> part about that one is I couldn't drink. And you're like 17 trying to go to parties and like, oh, I'd have one beer and it would fuck me up. And like I'd be grabbing my side for a while because <laughs> my liver was so scarred up. It was like, wasn't smart. wasn't smart. That's yeah. probably why I'm not much of a drinker now because it just. It, it wasn't no easier at the age of four. I bet it wasn't at all. I bet it was harder, man. No fruit Before, punch. Trying to deal with your life, trying to get a drink down. <laughs> yeah, and my dad always had a had a twenty four rack of uh, buckskins, you know. So it was, it was hard to stay out in buckskins at the age of four. Yeah, and hard to be a team roper without some buckskins in the truck, man. <laughs> Guaranteed, man. Guaranteed. Uh, so, did your dad was your dad shoeing a bunch of horses, or he's just shoeing horses at the ropings and stuff? When I was born, he he was uh, working on a feedlot, and he he first was working for my grandpa doing some welding and fence building, and they were building a lot of like stanchions at dairies and stuff because there, there's a lot of dairies around that area. Um, so so he was doing that, and then uh, they went and did a job at a feedlot in Winchester, California, which was like next town over. And uh, my, a couple of the cowboys rolled up and started talking to my dad, and they were, they were cool guys, and, you know, they could tell he was, he was a cowboy, and, and they are like, man, you ever work in a feedlot? And he goes, nope. And they go, you want to? And he goes, yep. So <laughs> he quit my grandpa pretty much on the spot and started working at this feedlot, and, and he, he quickly moved up to kind of being the head, head cowboy or manager or whatever. He got real, real good friends with the owner. He was a real good guy. And so that was a pretty sweet opportunity for, you know, my dad and my mom, because she'd she'd be around there helping too, because um, she was real good with cattle and livestock and everything and horses. And uh, so it was cool for my dad because he'd he'd get to work there and he could also um, bring in a couple of horses a month too and and train them at the feedlot. So he's getting some extra pay on top of that, and then you know, shoeing, shoeing his own horses and, and the horses he is training at the time. Um, but the main income was coming from, from the feedlot. And um, right down the street, like just a couple houses down, was a guy named Irvin Quick and his son Mike Quick. And they're famous bit makers. They made uh, Quick mm-hmm. Bits. Uh, you've probably seen them. You, maybe, you might not know them. But yeah, I've heard of them. You, you see quick bits in like all the old Western movies, you know, from Gunsmoke to John Wayne movies, like they have an aluminum cheek piece, a machined aluminum cheek piece that's real standard throughout all the different styles. And then they'll have a different uh, mouthpiece depending on, you know, what you're looking for. But uh, so so they were good ropers. And uh, the son, Mike Quick, he is a world champion calf roper. And he also made it to the NFR back in the day team roping. Uh, so my dad started hanging out with those guys and, you know, took it from being like a, a feedlot cowboy roper to, you know, a team roper. And uh, that kind of started a a whole thing. You know, our uncles got into it. I got into it. My brother got into it later on in life when, when he realized chicks dug dug horses. <laughs> cowboys. <laughs> yeah. A, a cool thing happened at the time, you know, when my dad started going the team ropings, 
he met a guy, um, I can't think of his name right now, but he, he was kind of a distant relation on my mom's side. Uh, Kobe, Kobe Stratton, I think was his name. Um, he rode up to my dad and he, he goes, Hey, I, I hear that you're shoeing some horses and stuff. And, and my dad says, yeah, I, I shoe a few at the feedlot, you know, and shoe my own and stuff. And, and he goes, well, you know, can you do 20 trims in a day? My dad goes, well, I've never, never had 20 trims in a day to try, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm willing to do anything. And, and the guy says like, well, meet me. Or, or, or you know what? He he told him. Uh, he said, "I'll give you all the work you want, but you gotta pay me like a percentage or something." And and my dad was like, ah, "I don't know about that." And then he met a guy. I, I kind of messed this up. He met a guy named Dick Long, and uh, Dick Long was a neighbor down the road. And uh, Dick's the one that asked my dad if he could do twenty trims a day. And and so my dad says, "You know, I, I think I can." And so Dick goes, well, if you want to want to give it a try, jump in the truck and go to work with me. And so he drove him over to Chino, where there's a bunch of big, you know, quarter horse, race horse, uh, and thoroughbred farms, and uh, turned him loose in a pasture and was like, you know, here's here's 20 head, try and get through them. And and Dick went and did his own. He comes back at noon and he's like, you done yet? And my dad goes, well, I got 10 more to go. And Dick's like, well, I already did my 20, so let me show you how to get through this a little quicker. And he, showed him how to use his nippers on the sole and stuff to pop it out and, you know, kind of speed him up a little bit. And so he got through him that day. And, and next thing you know, Dick's like, you want this ranch? And just gave it to him. And, you know, it was like the races. 300 head, you know, and, and then that just took off from there. He started picking up more and more. And, and so he, he went from just doing the backyard stuff and, you know, the odd, odd horse here and there as a part-time gig to like, almost overnight, you know, had hundreds of horses to, to look after and kind of jumped in with both feet. And yeah, that, that became his thing. You know, he, he always did, especially like the quarter horse race horse, um, stock farms. Yeah. That was what, that was his, always his bread and butter. You know, he, as when I was a little kid, he's at least doing 20 trims every day. <laughs> Damn. You know, and then, then some shoe ins on top of that. For pretty some savvy people. with horses then so he could like get by him probably pretty easy my dad is the best horseman i've ever seen in my life and that's that's not just a biased kid that's that's the guy you guys know that's that's been doing this trade for 30 years plus yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he is the finest horseman he can take the most spoiled rotten dangerous dink you've ever seen in your life and in in two days have him doing what he wants him to do and that was that was what he really got known for was being able to fix horses that were just total outlaws had, had hurt people back then we had the killer plants you know so i mean horses would hurt somebody they'd be dog food in a couple yeah, days gone. well my dad was kind of that stop in between the killer plant and the hospital and and uh he saved, it was he his saved last a whole lot chance. of horses lives yeah Wow. That's was, I bet I bet that was pretty popular too down where you guys were because you guys are so close to like Mexico where the horses are just yep gone like oh yeah yeah I bet that was, yeah so it's it's probably why he picked up so much dang work especially in those ranches and stuff like that all those horses that are just turned out the pasture are kind of like a little nasty you know <laughs> like oh, they are real rank as could be yeah. <laughs> those quarter horse broodstock man they are they're nuts and then yeah, then nasty. later on when uh embryo transfer became a thing 
one of my dad's good buddies is a guy named Dr. Steve Burns, and he's one of the pioneers of a lot of the techniques used in embryo transfer. And so he, you know, he was working for all the big ranches around doing all their embryo transfers. And then uh, he and my dad knew each other from working on the same ranches and became buddies. And then, uh, you know, when I was probably 16, 15 or 16, Dr. Burns decided to start working for himself. And he got like 20 head of recipient mares. And my dad was like, here's, here's your start, son. And takes me over to start trimming these recipient mares. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like my account, but he'd go with me. And then, yep. next, you know, Dr. Burns just blew up. I mean, he's, he's probably got over 700 head now of recipient Jeez. mares. I mean, he's, he's like the world's authority on yeah. uh, embryo transfers. And, um, it, it, I guess where I was going with that is there's like no kind of rank horse like a recipient mare. I don't know if you guys. Oh bet. man, I I bet, and I, w- I want to dive in like a little bit of re- like. So he has 700 recipient mares. Is he just doing studies on these, or is he doing he, foals for other people? He's doing foals for other people. Okay. Yep. He's okay. and and so you know part of the thing to be a re- recipient mare is you need to be big because you mm-hmm. you might have an Arab embryo you might have a frisian embryo you might have you know a draft horse embryo like so they got to be pretty big bulky big bodied horses and to make money at it you can't pay top dollar for them so you know you you end up getting now that you know nowadays they basically get the horses that would be going to the killer plant but now that you know killing horses it's it's not okay so we got to save every horse but any of the big ones that are fertile end up becoming recipient mares. And I mean, some of them have killed people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're, and and it was my business for a long time, you know, going to those ranches and I'd have, I'd, I'd work at Burns ranch with my dad once it got big. And then I'd work at uh, double bar S which was over in Paris, California. And they had five or 600 head. Um, and, and probably 200 recipient mares or more. And so like going to work every day, like you almost needed a flak jacket and a, and a helmet, you know, a A baseball bat. (laughs) It was was a daily occurrence to get kicked, you know, get kicked in the head, get, and I can remember like being in them catch pens, doing like the yearlings and stuff or trimming the mares and, and their little foals would jump on your back and try and mount you and ride you around the pen. run by and kick you in the face split your face (laughs) it was like combat shooting life back then it was it was great so how long did you end up doing that then like trimming recent mares until you like made to step up i started at you know probably i I should say it's probably more like 15 because as i think about it starting those 20 head for dr burns uh i didn't have a driver's license yet so i was 15 I was rolling with my dad and he was giving me more and more work. Um, you know, and by the time I got my driver's license, it was like game on, you know, I I was flying around doing everything I could shooing everything under the sun. And, you know, uh, it was, it was quite a, quite an interesting childhood really. Did And like, so you were probably riding with your dad probably because you had to a little bit when you were young. Um, I, I would go with him just mainly because I loved it. I, I can remember I can remember being like, you know, five or six years old, just sitting on his tailgate. And he always, he never had an anvil stand. He would just always set his anvil on the tailgate and, 
you know, wall up on the shoes, you know, in the hardy <laughs> hole, get them shaped up. Oh yeah. But I'd, I'd sit there on the tailgate and I'd get out his St. Croix city head fives and turn them into fish hooks. And uh, he'd get all, he'd get all pissed off at me, you know, you know, how much it cost, you know, or whatever. <laughs> ten, Money ten down the drain. Back then. <laughs> I'd have like half the box turned into fish hooks. that would never work, you know, but I thought they would, but I'd, I'd be sitting on that tailgate and I mean, I saw this so many times, like he'd walk into a pen, you know, with like a two-year-old that's barely halter broke. And that thing would just be doing circles around him, you know, like sideways to the ground, like parallel to the ground. It's going so fast. And all at once, man, he'd just mug him, just get him right around the throat latch in a freaking chokehold, turn their nose like he's steer wrestling, you know. And, and in like a quick move, he would have a halter and a lip chain on them suckers and have them turned around standing there and... I mean, it was just, <laughs> as, as a little kid, I'm just like, man, my dad is John Wayne. He's better. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that could go two ways though. You know, as a kid, you could be looking at it and be like, I want nothing to do with this. Or like, obviously you were a kid that was like admiring it. When's my turn. <laughs> like, I want to yeah. get in there. A smart person, a smart person would have gone with option A. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't want to do with that. You know, and then I'd be at home and he'd have a horse brought in that flips over. Like the minute you put your foot in the stirrup, it's flipping over, slam dunk style. And uh, so I'd see that kind of stuff, you know, where he's just stepping in the stirrup, horses flipping over, he's laying them down, tying their tying their face to the back D-ring and throwing a tarp over them. You yeah. Know, let them sit there and enjoy that California sun. In fact, that's, yeah. a, that's a great story. One time he had a horse under a tarp that, that was a flipper over and uh, somebody called animal control. You know, they, they see what's going on. So a neighbor calls animal control and animal control agent shows up. My dad's out there having a buckskin and, and he's like, hey, I hear you got a horse tied down on the ground with a tarp over it in the backyard. My dad goes, yeah, you want to see it? And he takes <laughs> there, you know, and it's a nice 100, 105, 110 degree day. And the guy's like, this is unacceptable, sir. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to take this horse. And my dad goes, well, let me show you something. And he takes the tarp off, gets the horse up, uh, tells the guy, hold my beer. <laughs> you know, step, go, steps in the stirrup, swings a leg over, and that horse just, boom, slam dunks itself. My dad steps off, tie, ties its nose back to the rear D. And here comes here comes that uh the animal control agent with the tarp. Yeah. Like, yeah okay. What you're dealing with here, sir. I'll, I'll go ahead and leave you to it. Yeah. <laughs> you got this under control. Yeah. Well, tying heads back to their tails into the saddles, not as, as commonplace anymore as it once was. There's a whole lot of them that need it though. Oh man. It's like, Most I definitely. grew up with that stuff. We're like, we're, we're taping tails and tying their heads around. And you're going to town for a while. And coming back, <laughs> it's like, Just let them be out there. That was part of the deal. I mean, that, that's how my dad would fix those messed up horses was, you know, we'd sack them out like crazy, you know, we'd tie a leg up so they couldn't hurt themselves too bad. And, you know, we'd spend just hours out there with two sacks of beer cans and, you know, twine, twine tied to it. So you could throw it at them from a distance and not get your head kicked off. And, you know, eventually, you know, they'd, they'd try and pull the post out of the ground and rip their, you know, rip their head off their neck. 
for a while, but then eventually you could throw that thing over their ears and, and seesaw it up and down with the can smacking them in the face and they wouldn't, yep. they wouldn't flinch. And then the next step would be saddle them, put them in a pen, tie their nose to the back D-ring and let them turn circles and flip over and do whatever they need to do, figure it out, you know, and, and then come back a few hours later and turn them the other way and do that for a couple of days. And you had a horse that whatever their problem was, it was gone. They figured it out. <laughs> It's kind of funny too, of like you grow up around that and then now you pull into a place and if you see they got like fence posts buried in the ground and truck axles and stuff, you're like, okay, they got some rank ones. <laughs> they are they are screwing around here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's funny. So what obviously your dad didn't like forge a lot. What nope, made you start wanting to forge? Well, we're getting ahead of my schedule, guys. I had, I had a, I have notes here. Stay on the schedule. Stay on the schedule. <laughs> All right. But, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I was hoping that one would come up. So I'll go ahead and answer it now, but we are going to have to back up a little bit after this. All right. Perfect. Cause there, there is a lot, there's a lot I got to tell you guys, this ain't going to happen in an hour and a half. In fact, uh, <laughs> we're here. I don't know if Drees right. next year or not, Riley, but Drees Pruis was like, man, I don't want no hour and a half weak hearted podcast. I want full two hours with coons. Fucking A, let's do it. That's Mr. <laughs> Pruis himself, so we can't. We're uh, here for it. Yep. So uh, I was probably about, I was probably about 17, you know, and I'd, I'd been working with my dad for years now, and I was shoeing horses on my own as well, but we were still, you know, riding together as much as we could. And we were driving through town one day, and I, I still – even though I was doing terrible in school. And I think I, at that point I was in, uh, I had to go to continuation to make up, make up some credits cause I got so far behind and, uh, we're driving through town and I still had it in my head that maybe I could be a vet, you know, even though I hated school and, and all that. And, and so I asked my dad, I said, I go, Hey, uh, if you could do it all over again and you could be either a horseshoer or you could be a vet, you know, what would you choose? It, and my dad didn't hesitate. He was like, I'd be, a, I'd be a shoer every time. And I said, why is that? And he, and he goes, well, he, so Dr. Etchart was our vet. He goes, well, look at Dr. Etchart. He goes, he had to go to school for all them years, you know, basically eight years of freaking school. Um, or what is it? Four years. It, it it's is about eight. eight to, it's yeah, about eight like total. Four, yeah, you got like four years of general ed, and then you got your four years of med. That's right. Yep. So, so he goes, you got to go to school for eight years. You got to pay for all that. He goes, Doctor Etchart. You know, at the time he had gray hair, and he's like, he's still paying off his student loans. He goes, that guy, he has to make at the, and this is, this is like probably nineteen ninety three, ninety two, ninety three. He goes, he goes. Dr. Etchart has to make $300 a day just to break even, you know, on, on his overhead. He goes, if I make $300 in a day, I made like, you know, 280 bucks profit. Yeah. He goes, you know, I, I'm not, we don't have the accountability they have. We don't have, you know, or not accountability, the liability. We, our liability is not as bad. We don't have to carry the inventory they have. You know, he's like, we don't have to have an office. We don't have to have secretaries. Like it's just to me, he goes, it's just way better. I get to work with horses. 
I don't have to be in the same place every day. Like I get to go here, there and yonder. And he's like, it's just, he goes, I would do it every time. And I, so I thought about it. I, as I was pondering it, he goes, but the one thing I do different, he goes, I would get a forge and I would learn how to make shoes. And I mean, I was like, what? Like we yeah. never needed a forge. What are you talking about? And he goes, we've needed a forge. It's just, we don't have one. And he goes, I wouldn't know what to do with it if I had it. He goes, I think there's a lot you could gain from, from that. You know, like if you're going to be a horseshoer, get a forge, learn how to make some shoes, learn how to draw clips. And, and this is at that time I witnessed it with my own eyes. Uh, I knew nothing of the AFA. I knew nothing of any uh, associations. I'd never heard of a contest, never heard of a clinic. And I'd been shoeing for a couple of years. And I remember being at, at like uh, boarding stables with my dad where we'd go to shoe one or two horses and the main guy would be in there set up and his forge would be going. And I remember one time this guy was down the, he was down in the middle of this barn aisle and I heard his forge and I heard him banging away. And, and I was like, man, I got to check that out. I was probably 15 or 16. I go cruising down there and the guy was drawing clips. But as I got closer and he seen I had shaps on and stuff, he shut off that forge and threw his shoes <laughs> in, the, in the forge and just stopped, put his hammer down and was real short. I want to take a moment to tell you guys about Wellshod. And not just that they carry every item you can think of from every brand, including from the little guys. You can get some Adam Farr punches, some Ben Sneer hammers. They pretty much got it all in the hard-to-beat $10 shipping. But I also want to take a moment to talk about John himself. You see the Wellshod name at pretty much every single contest that you go to. And not only that, you see John himself there supporting what we do and investing his time. Like John's even jumped in the competition in his ring himself at some of the WCB contests. That speaks huge to me. And it also speaks huge that John wanted to support what we're doing with the podcast. They've agreed that if you guys use brains at checkout, they're going to put a little mystery item in the box for you. So go ahead and support them, what they're doing, and it helps support us. Because in all, we're all just one community. With me. And, and later in life, like I got to know the guy and we became friends and stuff. And I, I really admire the guy. But he was one of the few guys in that area that could draw a clip. Was that you know, kind of like in the time where guys didn't want to like share information with each other and like exactly. super competitive? Exactly. And, and when, when you drive down the, the road and you'd see another horseshoe and they, there was no stone wells or anything like that at the time. You could just tell because they had a camper shell or yeah. they had a plywood structure in the back of their truck that you could tell had shoeing tools in it. Or maybe you knew them and seen them before. You didn't wave at each other. You'd see this. <laughs> yeah, <give laughs> Everybody them. too, man. They like hated each other. I mean, there was a few that were friends, but it was it was a different deal then, man. And uh, you know, it, it's to me, it's it's been. I feel super blessed because I've got to I've got to see everything in this industry change so much in my lifetime. You know, especially because I got to see it at a younger age than than most, you know, being a, a son of a horseshoer. I got to go into the shoe and supply shop as a little kid, you know, and I got to see just how like, say like a shoe and supply shop changed over the years, you know, it went from a few things to quite a few things to like a mega store, you know, yeah, like, Walmart. Like, like Lee Green's shoe and shop in Yucaipa, California. When I was a little kid, it was in a building that was probably, probably like a 40 by 40 and, you know, 10, maybe, maybe 15 by 15 of that was the office. And then part of it was like 
one third of it was a machine shop and the rest was the shoe and supply. And that was one of the biggest shoe and supplies probably in the world at the time. And then yeah, now only 40 40. shoe and supply is like, it's a warehouse, you know, and the, it, it's like half the size like well of the Home Depot, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and just, just see it, how everything's went in the industry. It's been crazy to watch this, this trade grow, how it has, you know, and, and just that my dad was so blown away. Uh, he went to the, um, he went to the, I think it was a 2003 AFA convention with me. Uh, it wasn't planned, but I broke my hand the night before I was, or the night that I was going to load up and head off to, to Utah. I broke my hand, got struck in the back of the hand. I was with by a horse. Yeah. I was the last horse of the day. You know, I was, I was hustling through these horses by myself, you know, to get, get everything stitched up so I could leave town. And, uh, it was one of them deals I was shooting the stud horse and he was, he was a pig. The owners weren't there. Uh, nobody was there, just me. And this guy, you know, we, we always had a hard time with him. He's a spoiled, rotten little pig. And, you know, normally a couple wraps on the belly with the pull-offs and he'd, he'd get a, he'd get a, get he'd become hand. a citizen. Well, it wasn't working so good. He probably sensed like the urgency in me of wanting to get done. And cause I, I was going to go home and pack up that night and drive through the night. You know, so I was probably a little too wound up and it just evolved into a, it just evolved fight. into a mess. Yeah. It got to be a fight and, and I had this idea pop in my head. It was an old memory from, from a, a horseshoer named Mike Harris that I knew. And, uh, Mike had come by one time when I was probably like 14 or 15 and I was working on the buck and barrel out in my dad's backyard and Mike used to ride a few bulls in his day. And so he came and was pulling on the ropes for me and stuff and, you know, giving me some pointers on, on riding the barrel. And, uh, and just in conversation, he goes, you know how some of them horses just sow up and, and they won't pick a foot up off the ground. And I says, yeah, I've seen that a time or two. And he goes, here's what you do. Take your pull offs and put them around that horse's pasture and give them a squeeze. Like the handle, put the reins, put the reins around his pasture and give him a squeeze. I knew that was a terrible idea when he told me <laughs> at the age of you fifteen. You know, fast forward like you know to when I'm like twenty two or twenty. Well, I was probably twenty four. So twenty four years old, I'd never tried that. You know, been shooing a, a decade at this point, never tried it. And uh, that, I got mad enough at that horse because he would not. Pick, he got to where he would not pick a foot up. You know, at all. And I was like, all right, I'll show you. And I grabbed them, grabbed them Lee Green pull-offs, which are massive, you know, massive stout things, put them around the pasture and bared down. And that dude struck the back of my right hand like a lightning bolt. It, it, he hit it so hard, I, I grabbed it, and I knew it was broke. By the time I had the courage to look at it, it looked like a Cabbage Patch kid. It was like, like twice as thick as it should be. It was turning black already. <laughs> Oh. It's one of those ideas that you're like, this is like sticking a fork in the outlet. It's going to blow up. Like it's going to happen so fast. I, I, so, I so knew better. I so knew better. Oh, yeah. and, like this is dumb, but here I go. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, so I called my dad on the way, way to the house. And I was like, I go, dad, I, I messed up, man. My hands broke. I'm supposed to leave for Utah tonight, you know, to compete and, and he's like, well, what do you need me to do? And I says, well, is there any way you could drive me so I could, you know, help me load my stuff for one, 
I said, and two, you know, if you could drive me out there, that'd sure be good because then I could ice that hand, you know, and maybe get some of the swelling out of it so I could compete. And he goes, well, let me see what I could do. So, you know, next thing I know, he's pulling in the driveway and we load her up and brought me a little ice chest full of ice. And I just kept my hand buried in that thing all the way to Utah. And we drove through a whiteout blizzard from Mesquite, Nevada to Salt Lake City. And and I mean, just white knuckling it, couldn't see nothing. Just just the, the tire tracks from the semi in front of you, you know, and cars would pass us. And then 20 minutes later, we'd see them upside down in the ditch. In the ditch. <laughs> yeah, but I, that was a rough go, man. I got there to Utah and at, uh, that was my first time competing with a broken hand. And I just remember my hammer would just go flying on the backswing can't grip <laughs> uh, I felt bad for the people behind me I'd have to run over there and get it, <laughs> uh, it but I made the shoeing for the first time it was only my second convention but I made the shoeing and uh ended up I think I made the shoeing in, in 19th place and ended up um I think I ended up like eighth or ninth or something which That's I was not, not happy about I wasn't happy. I thought I should have probably won that deal in, in my little arrogant mind. But uh, Bob Marshall came up to me and he, he took me over to the leaderboard and he's like, this is something to be proud of, Travis. He goes, look at this. It, it, he pointed every name in front of mine and he's like, American Farriers team member, American Farriers team member, past American Farriers team member, English you know, national champion and English Farrier team member, all the way down. He goes, you're the first you're the first place person that's not been on a, on an international team and isn't yep. a world champion. And, you know, so it made me feel better. And your and, second and, time uh, competing. Jim Rick won the shoe in that year. I remember that's a great, I need to tell that story while we're here. Uh, yeah. So, so Jim quick, he won the shoe in and, and that was a point in my life where, um, I had quit. Where are you going? Get back here. I'm telling you a story, boy. I'm One still listening. <laughs> I'm still listening. <laughs> so, so at that point in my life, I, I was a single dude. I was, you know, chasing girls. I, I'd been partying for three years. I, I was coming off a three-year hiatus where I hadn't competed, hadn't done nothing but party and work for three straight years. And, and so now I'm not wearing the Wranglers and the boots anymore. I don't have the mustache I had, you know, since I was 16. Uh, now I'm wearing like baggy pants and, you know, a, a, a studded belt. You know, I had this green, I had this green belt with like the little chrome studs all over it. And I had a roadster that I made for a belt buckle. Going for and the bad boy sagging. image. I'd be sagging my pants with some DCs or Etnies on, you know, that weren't laced up. This sounds you know, like Quick's, Quick's dream. All the time. Had the four inch thick rolled bandana all the time. Yeah. All that, all that stuff. And I mean... My dad, I remember my dad in the hallways, like, you know, people would just look at me, you know, all these horseshoes just look at me, walk by, they'd shake their heads. And, and my dad was sitting up in the bleachers watching me compete. And there, some dudes came and sat down by him, you know, some good old boys. And, and pretty soon they're like, man, look at who's that dude think he is with them pants hanging off his ass and backwards hat. You know, this is, this is a horseshoeing contest, not a drive-by shooting contest. And you know, <laughs> this gangbanger looking dude. And my yeah. dad turns around and looks at him and he's like, that's my son. And they're like, oh, he looks real handy, sir. Real handy. <laughs> real quick like. You know, uh, so, so that was just setting the stage a little bit. So Jim Quick wins the shoe in. 
And I mean, he's one of my heroes, you know, I've never met the guy. I've seen him compete a bunch throughout the years, but I was super shy uh, back then. I, I wouldn't say boo to hardly anybody, especially somebody who I knew who they were, you know, they had some, some uh, clout. So Jim wins the shoe and I'm like eighth or ninth place. And I'm thinking, you know, now's the time to break the ice. I'm, I'm going to say so. I'm going to go congratulate him, you know. And, and so it's like the night of the banquet, and everybody's all tuned up. And, and I, I'm watching Jim, and pretty soon he's kind of off by himself getting a drink. I walk over there. I said, excuse me, Mr. Quick. And he turns around, and he just, he just looks me straight up and down. And I stick my hand out. I go, I go hey, I just I wanted to congratulate you on winning the shoeing. And, I mean, I didn't know nothing about the scoring, but – I think he had like a 199 or something like that. And I was thinking like 200 was perfect. So I was like thinking he was like one point off of perfect. I'm just standing there like a fool with my hand. You know, my hand's just out there in the air in front of him. And he's just like looking at it. And uh, I was like, so you, you almost got like a perfect score, huh? And he's like, yep. <laughs> and I go, well, why did, my name's Travis Coons. I just wanted to, cre-. and as I'm saying, I, as I'm saying this, he turns around and walks away. Oh, <laughs> shit. And I, lo- I lost it, dude. I lost it. I'm like, well, then F you, you mother effer. <laughs> and I'm yelling. I'm like, come, because that's always been my thing. Like, I'm nice and polite, but, man, once you sting me, it's on. Yeah. And I will say or do anything to get that going, you know. And so I'm, like, yelling, cussing at this dude across the place, and he <laughs> just walks off like I'm not even standing there. <laughs> oh, my God. And so then my dad tells, like, the whole ride home, my dad's just like, why are you doing this to yourself, man? Oh, we walked into the banquet. We go walking in the banquet, me and my dad looking for a table, and we'd see a couple chairs opened up, you know, and, and some would be leaned up against the table, and some would be sitting there, and there'd be a couple dudes at a table. And, you know, we'd go rolling over there, and I'd be like, oh, hey, are these chairs taken? And they'd look at me. I'd be like, yep. So I'd yep. go to the next table. Are these chairs taken? They'd look at me. Yep. And then my dad would roll up. He rolls up to one of them tables I just asked, and, and he's like, are these chairs taken? They look at him, Wranglers, belt buckle, trophy buckle, button-up shirt, cowboy hat. And they're like, oh, no, these are wide open, sir. Have a seat. <laughs> you know, so the whole ride home, my dad's just like, why are you doing this to yourself? He's like, you're more of a cowboy in a hand than – you know, 90% of these dudes here and they all disrespect you because of the way you present yourself. He's like, this ain't what I brought you up to dress like and all that. And I'm just like, man, dad, if, if these dudes, if these dudes are going to judge me by the way I look, I don't want them as friends. I could give right. two, you know, what's about them, you know? I was going to say at that point, it kind of had, because it's not like you change because when I met you, even you weren't dressing too much different. Like you didn't have a saggy, but you still have the bandana and everything. It's like that. So it's at that point, you probably want to like, I'm going to prove to these guys I can do it and still dress this way. Yeah. I, I got to a point where it was like, man, I, you know, I'm not got a point to prove. Yeah. I don't, I don't have anything. I didn't have a point to prove. And, and eventually it was like, you know, I, I know what my roots are and I, I've, I'm a cowboy, you know, I was brought up to, and I mean, I don't use that word lightly. You know, if I call somebody a cowboy, that I, I have a lot of respect for that guy, but I was brought up by good cowboys and the cowboys were always my heroes. And, you know, that I lived my life as a kid growing up, like I could do veterinarian work. I used to have like a little, you know, unlicensed veterinary practice as a kid. You know, I'd, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have a little, I'd have a, um, 
I'd have like a uh, advertisement in the class or classified green sheet, you know, the little free dollar saver and all that, you know, like uh, trimming or goat hoof trimming, pig hoof trimming, livestock, livestock services, yeah. <laughs> uh, sheep shearing. And, you know, my mom would drive me around if I get a call and I'd go do whatever, you know, somebody needed some hoof trimming on a goat, I'd go do that. I'd shear their sheep. You know, oh, you need some vaccines while we're here? Let me shoot them up for you. And <laughs> <laughs> cheap for people and, you know, do all kinds of whatever, whatever they needed, man. It was a one-stop shop. I was ready to, ready to do it for five or ten bucks, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good deal, though. That's, a, that's the best part about small town. It's like little deals. It's, that stuff's still very well and alive. Yeah. <laughs> been like people learned how to be business businessmen like very quickly at a young age and how to make do exactly and like dr etchard our vet man he was our family vet before i was born you know and um, i would ride with him and he would teach me all kinds of stuff he taught me how to inseminate mares he taught me how to collect stallions you know how to give all the different shots taught me how to do iv shots you know correctly um, taught me all kinds of different techniques on stuff and you know, he'd teach me about, I'd ask him questions on anatomy on horses and all that. And I mean, he was a, he was a big, big part of my, my early education and, and introduction. And, and he didn't want nothing to do with going out and working on somebody's goat or sheep or, or pig, especially, mm-hmm. you know, and so I had me a little pig farm and I raised sheep. And, and so I had a lot of experience and, and education I'd gotten from my mom and from my grandpa Harv. And, uh, he was a pig farmer and, and all that so I, I learned a lot from my family and was able to go make money as a kid doing this stuff and you know it, it really helped because you know I'm doing this stuff at like 12 to 15 years old and by the time I was shoeing horses I, I like knew how to deal with clients because of that you know I knew how to run a business because of that and you know like at the age of 12 or 13 um, I paid my stepdad uh, Tony Cornado who is a contractor I paid him to build me a farrowing barn for my pigs. You know, we poured a slab, built a, I forget what it was. It was maybe like, you know, 20 by 20 or something like that. And had two farrowing crates in there and, you know, plumbing and everything else, you know, I was. Yeah. Because of livestock and all that. And then my little side hustles and all that, man, I, I could pay a con business. I'm sure I got a friends and family discount, but you know, yeah, it's a pretty sweet deal for a kid. No, it yeah. teaches you that businesses aren't just free, that you aren't, you don't just get to spend all that money on whatever you want. It has to go back into your business to make more money. Like it's a very good lesson. Exactly. So, so some of the things I wanted to do, um, you know, it's, it's an honor that you guys want to interview me and, and kind of get my story out there, but I've always looked at myself as a sponge. Uh, I'll start with a little quote from Master Lee. And that's uh, Master Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Damn, I gotta get my glasses. <laughs> I was wondering guys, what Lee you, you were gonna start off with here. Oh, here we go. Hold on. <laughs> All right. So, so this is from uh, Master Bruce Lee. Be formless, shapeless, like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it into a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friends. 
but that's a good one. That's that's what Master Lee says. Uh, Master Kunzagi. You guys ever heard of Master Kunzagi? <laughs> no. <It's the> first. <laughs> Master Kunzagi say, "Be like a sponge. The sponge can absorb and contain the water. The water becomes the sponge." The sponge can transport the water and disperse it into different time and place. I like that. So, so Master Kunzagi is me. <laughs> da- uh, Daniel Jones gave me that nickname. <laughs> Kunzagi. <laughs> I, I was working with Daniel, you know, when he was a, a young up and coming dude. Um, I used to call him Daniel Son, you know, like some kid, <laughs> Daniel Son. And and everything I would teach him, I'd be like, no, Daniel son, power come, power on the hammer come from here, not here. You know, and I, <laughs> all, I, I did everything like Mr. Miyagi with Daniel. And so yeah. he started calling me Kunzagi. <laughs> Daniel son. <laughs> and did, did Daniel know of that quote then when he called you that or just say, cause I just, I just made, I him. just made that quote up about the, the one. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I just, Dude, I was, that. I was fully, I, I was in, I was like, oh, that's a good, good one. I thought it was another guy. Yeah, so <laughs> oh, I, thought I that. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a real, another, like, I was like, man, it's another, like, what do they call him? Uh, the guy that leads the karate classes. Oh, a like, sensei. Yeah, the sensei. I thought it was like another sensei that just like wrote a quote off of me. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, Travis is the sensei right here. He is. <laughs> So my dad told me about that uh, water quote from Bruce Lee. He had, he had heard it on TV or something, and uh, he was like, man, this is really good. You ought to check it out. And so I did, and I was like, man, that is awesome. But then when I started like trying to figure out how to apply it to what I do, I was like, man, I don't, I don't think it's so good to just be like a chameleon, you know, and, and to where you just turn different colors on depending on what's behind you, you know, or underneath you. And, and that's kind of what I get from that. It, it, Bruce Lee was saying it more like his style of fighting instead of just being rigid and, and uh, choreographed. It, he was applying this, this more to like just going with the flow and, and go, you know, making it up as you go and just reacting to, to the situation. Um, so when I started trying to uh, apply that to what we do. I was like, man, it doesn't really work so good for that. I mean, you do have to be pliable and you do have to think on your feet and, you know, make audibles and stuff. But I've always thought of myself as a sponge. And and that's like, I think a really great attribute I have is being able to soak up something from anybody I come in contact with, not just horseshoers, you know, or, or doctors or what it like anybody I come in contact with, I want to take something with me. And yeah. so last night I was like, man, I got to read that Bruce Lee quote. And so as I was, as I was looking it up and making sure I got it quoted, right. Then the, the sponge thing popped into my head and I just wrote that, wrote that quote down about the sponge. Cause you know, I, I feel like the water, you know, is the knowledge and the experience and the, um, you know, the skills that we, that we learn in this trade. And, you know, if you're a sponge and you can soak that up, you can easily take it to a different time, you know, in a different place and you can disperse it there. You know, I, I, I was so fortunate to be able to see Edward Martin, Bob Marshall, you know, David, um, David Wilson, you know, uh, just, just the legends of this trade. You know, I, I was, I came in at such a great time. I got to see 
Craig and Jim Poor and those guys like in their prime, you know, seeing yep. them competing when they were like the dream team. It was, it was so awesome. Like such an awesome time to come up. And I got so many good stories, you know, to tell about contests and, and things I saw at them. But so I wanted to read that quote and kind of, kind of get that started. And, and I, I want to, you know, in the, in the sense of being a sponge, you know, my story isn't about me. It's about everybody that helped me. It's about everybody that I drew something from. It's about everybody that pissed me off enough to like drive me into that shop, you know? And, and so I have a list of names here that I, I just want to read them, you know, and, and some you guys will know, um, some you'll never have heard of because they're family or friends. Um, I was writing this down last night because I, I just, I can't stand when people don't give credit where credit is due. And, you know, for yep. me to sit here and act like, man, I, I did this and that, you know, because I worked harder than everybody else and, and I was a little bit better than everybody else and tougher, that, that, ain't, uh, that ain't accurate at all. You know, I, I'm successful because of who I was blessed to be around, you know. Um, and I'd never had the right attitude. I had, a, I had a loser's mentality you know, for a long time. And then I had certain people just step up and be like, you know, like one of my uncles, my uncle John, he, he was the first person that ever told me, he's like, dude, you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. I'd never heard that before. You know, that kind of stuff is very common nowadays. But I mean, I was like, what? I'm a little fat kid. You know, I get bullied by girls. Like how, how can I do anything I want to put my mind to? But my uncle John, he was a, he was a, dude that rode bucking horses and bulls for 20 years and I mean just a bad hombre you know whatever he did he was good at whether it was baseball you know uh, bareback or roping like whatever he did he's good at but it was because of his mentality you know he just he just had a so winner mindset of like I'm gonna be the best at everything I put my hand to you know and and so he was one of them people that just got a hold of my life at the right time and, and gave me advice that turned me around, you know? So I just want to read these names. And, and as I was writing them down last night, it kind of started out in order of like, as I met these people and as they in, impacted my life. But then as I kind of get to the second and third page. Um, <laughs> well, I may, may I ask them, you to hold uh, on to that list because like towards the end, um, something I like to ask our guests is like a Mount Rushmore. I, I have so a Mount Rushmore too. Oh okay. yeah, I'd say they'll probably be different. Okay. Yeah, so I, when when you guys when you hit me up, Gavit, about doing this, um, I'd been wanting to listen to your podcast for a while. I'd been hearing about it from from friends, but I I like to binge on stuff. I don't like to just listen to one episode and then have to wait for a week or two. You know. Yeah. So I was like, way. I'm gonna wait till they get some content. You know, and then I kind of forgot, and a year went by. You know, and and uh, one of my good buddies told me, you know, he, he goes, dude, they just did a podcast with Ian Ritchie and John Dixon. And <laughs> he goes, you shouldn't listen to it because when you do, you're going to want to track those dudes down, especially John Dixon. You're going to want to track them <laughs> down and beat him. And I mean, this guy knows me about as good as anybody. So I was like, hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and so I. I, I never did listen to it. I just kind of was like, well, when I see John Dixon, it's on like Donkey Kong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> see what he has to say. Have us a good old fashioned, you know, get down in the dirt and sort it out kind of, kind of meeting. And, uh, 
and it, it was shocking to me because I knew John since he was a kid. You know, I knew his dad, I know his brother, and uh, I I was kind of partially responsible for corrupting him as he you know as he was an underage minor at Calgary. Yeah, <laughs> you know, hanging out with me was probably not the best idea, but you know he was game. He was a gamer, so. Yeah. I was kind of shocked when I heard this. I'm like, man, I can't believe, you know, just because we've had some words over horses and stuff that he'd, you know, badmouth me on a podcast. Well, when Gavin texts me one night, you know, asking me if I do this, I go, well, I guess I better get caught up on their podcast. <laughs> so that was the first one I started with was, was the Vendetta one, you know, the one I'm going to have to get some, get some uh, revenge on. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I listened to the thing and, and John Dixon did nothing but compliment me. I thought, you know, I was the only thing that I think could have been misconstrued was at one point John was like, well, I could just be like Coons and roll around Calgary drunk with only the top button on my shirt button. <laughs> Looking like a cholo. Thing, man. I would, I would always do that with the shirts they gave us, you know, I'd go full on California cholo and just button the top button with the rest un, undone and pulled it out. <laughs> you know, backwards hat and all that. And, and that way I'd stand out in those big group photos, you know, cause you'd see like my white t-shirt on underneath or something. And, uh-huh. you know, it's <laughs> hard to find yourself sometimes. Some of them photos, we had like a hundred people or more. So I'd always do so. I'd have the, you know, bill of my hat tacoed up in front or, <laughs> or whatever. And I was literally always drunk at Calgary. Well, I was always drunk everywhere back then. Uh, you know, I didn't sleep that whole week at Calgary. I would, you know, I'd typically take a thousand dollars just for beer money, and I'd normally end up pulling out another thousand, you know, halfway through the week. <laughs> Shit. It, it was, I went hard, you know. It was one of them things. Having a good time. <laughs> after I listened to the podcast, I was like, man, I got nothing to really get after John about. He didn't, he didn't offend me one bit. I'm, I'm honored they mentioned my name, and, and then Ian. Uh, you know, he put me on his Mount Rushmore, which was a huge honor because I, I have the utmost respect for Ian and his skill and, and his dedication. Yeah, he's a great to guy. Trade. You know, he's trained so many people. And, you know, he and I have judged a bunch of big contests together. Um, you know, we're, we're best of buddies. Um, but I do have to set the record straight on a couple of things that Ian talked about. Our great friends over at Ferrybox have been supporting us on Forging Brains for a while now. Since the time that they have sponsored the show, we have received many great products that I wouldn't have thought about buying, or because I was being a tight ass. But they were sent to me in their subscription box, and now I use those products in my day-to-day practice. Each box is sent bi-monthly, and in those boxes is an array of the top tools and products that have been tested by the greats in our industry. So go to www.fairybox.com and use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's order. You won't be disappointed. I'll tell you that. Because I think the old age has affected his brain a little bit. <laughs> Maybe there's a, a slight bit of like Biden-style dementia going on. Uh, <laughs> I like I, I've that. seen him recently. He walks better than Joe Biden. He doesn't have the little... Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But, you know, the mind's getting a little slower, I think. Uh, so Ian, was he was talking about the epic five-judge competition that we had in the WCB. Oh, the WCB one? Yeah, he, he made mention of that. And, and so it was cool to hear it, you know, because I think about that one a lot. That one was, that one was huge for me. Um, and it was, it was just an event that's never been able to be 
replicated, you know, we, we never did it again because it was just too much. It was so hard. Um, but Ian couldn't remember. He had maybe three or four of the judges' names. Um, he didn't have them all. Um, he wasn't quite sure on the location. Uh, he talked about the epic match play, you oh, know, yeah. me and Dusty. Uh, he kind of messed that up. So I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, the right judges got credit for that. So um, that was actually, that was the 2009 um, finals. So did you say Shane was one of the judges? Yes, sir. Um, I got them all wrote down here. I know I'm off the top of my head, but I'm going to refer to the notes. Just to be certain. So, yep, that was the 09 WCB uh, National Championship or finals. Back then, the finals were worth double points. Um, I had just gotten married. Um, the judges, it was at the Denver Stock Show. So that that was... That's pretty that cool. Was, to me, that was huge because I, I always had planned to rodeo there, you know? Yeah. From the time As any I was young kid. cowboy does. Yep. I, I always thought I'd be there riding bulls or roping, you know, or maybe both. And and then this horseshoeing competition stuff came along and kind of snatched up my, my time and attention. But so the judges, the five judges were Shane Carter, Jim Poor, Mr. Jim Keith, Roy Bloom, and Scott Davidson. It's a handy list. It, it was it was something else, uh, you know. Just just all top hands, you know, like all people with impeccable eyes, you know, just high high standard guys. So um, I knew going and, in. And did they just do they each individually make specimens? Like so, they each had a specimen in there. Everybody, yeah, everybody uh, had some of the specimens. Uh, I don't remember all of them, but I, one thing I remember in particular was Jim Poor put a slider in there. It was an inch and a quarter slider with a um, brazed-on rudder. And yep. I've always loved sliders, even though I never shod many uh, reining horses. Never had, like, barns of them, but I, I did the odd odd horse here and there. But I always thought that it was really cool discipline, you know, because there's so much you could do with the trim and with the shoe to, to enhance mm -hmm. the horses or help them out. And, and, and did I, that slider have like kind of the turned up heels on it? I, I think it had a turned up lateral, okay. like a, a spooned lateral and the rudder was yeah. on the quarter, um, had the, had the continuous rocker toe, I think like the arc, yep. the, the radius yep. rocker toe. Yeah. I've seen those. Yep. Cool and it, was, it was one of them shoes where people probably like, Oh, it's a slider. What, you know, no big deal. But I, I worked hard on that thing cause I seen there was a lot of little, minute details in there that the average person might not notice or, or see. So I worked hard oh, on yeah. that thing. And, and I remember I won that shoe and Shane Carter actually made the call on that. You know, I think it was kind of going back and forth between either, I think it was between me and Gene Leisure on that shoe for first and second. And, you know, all the judges had kind of moved them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then Shane walked up and looked at him, turned him over and, uh, took a Sharpie and he drew on my pritchel holes. Like he, he connected the dots on my pritchel holes and then he connected the dots on jeans. And he goes, he goes, look at the foot in that nail pattern on mine. And he goes, and then look at the lack of a foot in the nail pattern on this one. And 
boom, my shoe went to first and jeans actually. Exciting factor. I don't know if it went to second or if it even went a little lower after Shane pointed that out. And it was just a matter of how they flowed where jeans were kind of a straight line and mine had the, the arc to them. And like even just yeah. the placement of the Pritchell hole in the steel, you know, the, the correlation of it to the inner and outer edge was perfect all the way through every hole. It and was that, an arc and not a zigzag. And it was something I saw in the specimen that I really worked on. And, and it was something I always paid attention to because I shot every horse with handmaids, you know, most, most of my entire career. Um, so I really always focused on nail holes and, and nail ability and, uh, it paid off on that one. And then that, that match play, um, yeah, I was going to ask you, was this the one you're telling me about the story between, uh, you and Shane kind of, Oh, that is, that is the contest where Shane ripped my head off yeah. and, and that wasn't due to the match play. That was, uh, you're so imagine five. Imagine five judges trying to judge every part of the shoeing at a WCB. Yeah. Like it's, that was something Chaos. I don't think we put a whole lot of thought in, in into other than uh, Shane put a lot of thought into it, knowing that it was going to be a cluster and that it was going to cost everyone a lot of time. And of course, you know, like so many places, the horses we got were, were working horses that worked out in the mountains and stuff. And, you know, they, Shane was adamant, like, these things need to be fit up tidy. Like, I don't want any length. You know, I don't want any expansion, like, dime on a dime type stuff here, you know, is what we're looking for. And so Shane pretty much laid down the rules. He's like, if your trim isn't checked in 15 minutes, you're done. You know, if you, if you haven't called for us to come check your trim in 15 minutes, just pack your tools. We're not going to look at it. If, if your shoe isn't ready for fit check in 30 minutes pack your tools you're done we're not gonna look at it and then he he also said he's like the final judge or he, he something like we're gonna give you a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the shoe whether it can be nailed on or not like if you give me a shoe that has length then you i'm no gonna doubt. give it back to you and you rasp it off and make it fit or don't nail it on kind of thing like you had to get the okay from the final judge before you you could nail on so I'm striking for my buddy, Nick Rossi, and, and uh, you know, I'm helping him fit and all that. I'm like, Nick, it's long. He's like, I know, but I'm running out of time. Got to get this shoe judge or they're going to, you know, dis DQ me. And so Nick finally is like, okay, I got to turn it in. And so I hand it to the, I hand it to the uh, horse holder, and he raises his hand. All the judges come and judge it. Shane was like the final one, and, you know, I'm striking on the specimen, helping Nick the best I can. And then the, the horse handler goes, hey, you're good to go. Nail it on. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm thinking we were going to get the old, like, you know, shorten it no. up deal. He's like, nope, they said you're good to go. And so Nick comes yeah. and he starts nailing that thing on, man. And Shane Carter comes by and sees it and just comes unglued, man. Starts yeah. yelling at me. And, and I'm like, all I'm doing, all I'm trying to tell Shane is, dude, the horse handler told me, or not dude, never say dude to Shane Carter. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Carter, the, the horse handler told me we were good to go. And I mean, I couldn't get three words out of my mouth. And he's just like, I mean, you could see the devil <laughs> in his eyes. And, I mean, he's come apart on me. He's like bright red and he's just, his eyes are bugging out of his head. And he's like, you shut, you shut your mouth and listen to me when I talk. And so I'd listen and he's reaming me. And then I'd go to say something and he'd yell some more. And I'm just like, 
I'm taking it, you know, the best I can. And, and then, you know, finally he storms off. And so we pull the shoe off, rasp the heck out of it, nail it back on and get done. And then later I go in the trailer, you know, to see Chris, uh, Christine and, and Suzanne and everything. And, and Shane walks in and I look over at him and smile and, and he goes, uh, I, I go, Shane, can we talk? And he goes, yeah. So we go outside and I, I go, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry if you felt like I was disrespecting you. And he goes, no, no, man, I'm, I'm really sorry for talking to you like that, man. You didn't deserve that. I, I go, I go, no, Shane, I should have kept my mouth shut and heard you out. I go, I just was, you know, I didn't want you to think that I didn't, you know, that I just threw what you said into the wind and told him to nail it on. I go, my guy legit, our horse holder legitimately said, you said to nail it on. And he, yeah. he was like, oh, okay. And, and he's like, man, I'm sorry. I, I had no right to talk to you like that. And I go, Shane, you can talk to me like that anytime you want. I go, it means the world to me that you would take the time to yell at me. And he looked at me, he goes, man, you're a sick SOB. <laughs> <laughs> it was intense. I mean, I, I heard later from my buddy Tyson Clark, he was scribing for Jim Poor. And they come around the corner and, and, and see Shane and in my face, you know, with his finger and I'm just like standing there gritting my teeth and, and uh, Jim poor puts his hand out in front of Tyson. He goes, let's go over here. Leave these guys. (laughs) We gotta go man. (laughs) over there right now. (laughs) It was intense. Like Shane Carter is one of the most intense guys I've ever met. You know, people, I've heard people on the podcast say how intense money is and all that. And, I just laugh because money is just a teddy bear, but that, that is an intense, hard man. Like, yeah. 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 Oh, I, I would have, I would love to have been a fly on the wall during like their practices with Shane, Jim quick, Jim poor and Craig, like Craig was probably the most screw offish in the bunch or maybe poor, but it's like, I'm sure those practices were, were very serious. Were very would be, like probably make some guys cry watching. Like, oh, they couldn't handle it. There's people. There's people that quit. You know. There's guys when they had the gold team, silver team. There. There's people that quit that just couldn't take it. I mean, and tough guys, like they just could not take it, so they just quit. Like I'm done. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, and and yeah. then I. Well, just think like who who else on this planet could could take care of Jay and, and learn from Jay, like Jay, like Shane did. I mean, he learned from Jay and, and then took care of Jay the rest of his life. Like that takes a tough, tough man. Cause I mean, I, I love Jay, but you know, in doses, you know, like I'd, I'd spend every second I could when I could get around him, but I could not imagine having Jay live at my house. <laughs> yeah. And Shane, <laughs> Like he's a saint, but he's a hard, hard man as well. And I mean, I have so much respect for him. Um, you know, seeing him, seeing him back in his prime and stuff, it, oh, amazing, amazing. Oh, I see. bet it was awesome. Yeah, let me read the list of names real quick. You know, so yeah, we'll do that and then we'll put right. rabbit hole in you. <laughs> well, so so like I said, you know, some of these people were best friends, some were family, some were people that just pissed me off so much that it motivated me to like come to that next level. Uh, most of them, you know, were friends and people that led by, by example. Um, and you know, a lot were family. I I was very fortunate to be alive and, and know a lot of 
or, you know, most of my mentors and, and heroes were part of that great, that greatest generation that this world ever saw. You know, the, the grandparents and stuff that went through the Great Depression and World War II, you know, those, those were the, you know, I was, I was somewhat Tough raised people. by my grandpa Harvey. And I mean, he was, he was such an amazing man, a work ethic like I've never seen, uh, you know, fought, fought in the Philippine Islands uh, or ran a tank through the Philippine Islands and, you know, did a lot of very harsh things, but was also like the kindest, gentlest, like, uh, follower of Christ, like the guy that would pick up a hitchhiker and move him in that just got out of prison. True story. You know, like yeah. just gave everybody, <laughs> gave everybody, everybody, everything he had, you know, so I was, I was so lucky to be around people like that. So here we go. My parents, uh, Keith and Elena Coons, um, my mom, Eileen and Tony Coronado, uh, my uncle Scott, John, Tom Coons, Buzz Coons, uh, my grandpa, grandpa and grandma, Howard and Stella Harvey, Uncle Harold and Helen Reeder, um, my grandpa Sherman and Pat and grandma Pat Coons, um, Benny Viegas, he was a, he was a guy that helped our FFA group. He was a, a he had been in our FFA group himself and then, uh, when we got into parliamentary procedure competition, he showed up and and uh, schooled us all on it. And he's a guy that he's one of the first guys I heard say like, "If you," he was like, "I'll I'll help you at any point in your life as long as you're doing your best." Like if if you want to be a drunk or a crackhead, you better be the best drunk crackhead out there, and I'll help you. He's like whatever you yeah. do, try and be the best at it. Like, but such a cool guy. So my ag teacher, George Kreutz, Dr. John Etchart, who we talked about, uh, Noel Portelli, Dirk Ballard, Dave Stone, Danny Cadwell, Denny Bryant, Bob Marshall, Monty Schwanevelt, Lee Green, Dallas Morgan, Jason Harmison, Ken Lyon, Todd Walker, John McNerney, Bill Poor, Craig and Christine Turnka, Jim Poor, Jim Quick, Shane Carter, Roy Bloom, Aaron Fry, Trey Green, Billy Reed, Chris Madrid, Conrad Tro, Tim McPhee, Jason Job, Jerry Schwanevelt, Myron McLean, Uncle Dave Harvey, John Crater, Austin Edens, Mark Milster, Jim Keith, Josh Sanders, Josh Eggink, Jake Engler, Edward Martin, Gary Darlow, Darren Bazin, Billy Crothers, Derek Gardner, Ian Ritchie, Marshall Isles, Ben Yeager, Scott Davidson, Dan Hausman, Jim Balfour, Ian Guyjax, Devin Carrera, uh, Beanie, Brian Graham, Nick Rossi, Jay Sharp, Dries Pruis, Bob Medeiros, Lawrence Fortin, Chris Waring, David Hopper, Johnny Coons, Joe and Christy Talley, Joey Talley, Michael and Emily Timoni, Daniel Jones, Lamar Weaver, Dr. Cobb, Dr. Eric Cobb, Chad Chance, Hooter, Shannon Hamilton, Chuck Kolb, Donnie Reed, Gene Leisure, and most of all, my beautiful, loving wife, Nicole Coons, and my children, Cadence and Caleb Coons. Like all these, all these names I mentioned are, and there's a lot more, I'm sure. That's a strong uh, list. All those people had like profound impacts on my life one way or another. And like Trey Green's a name in there. Like I hated that dude when I first met him. We almost, no I, I tried to have a little throwdown with him at the end of the banquet because he was such an arrogant, pompous, you know, like hitting on my buddy's wife, you know, <laughs> out of his shirt. I, you know, even though I was a shy, quiet kid, I was like, 
dude, you better, you better go over there before I knock your head off. <laughs> <laughs> That'd was, be a mountain to climb. That'd be a mountain to climb right there. <laughs> he, he's strong, but he ain't tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've rolled around a few times. Uh, but Trey, when he showed up, I, it was my first division two and my only division two. I, uh, it, me and Trey were back and forth, first and second, every class. When it, going into the shoe and we were tied, and uh, the shoe was double points, and he got me by one place in the shoe so he won the buckle. And I told myself after that, I'm like, man, I ain't, I ain't ever going to get beat by some no-name dude like this Trey Green guy that I've never heard of. <laughs> I'd much rather go get beat by Craig Tarka, Jason Smith, Jim Poor. So I'm just going in the open. And so <laughs> into the open after that. And, you know, years later, me and Trey became really good friends. And, and then come to find out, like when we were on the AFT together and stuff, we'd, we'd room together sometimes and stay up all night talking, you know. And, you know, come to find out we were riding bulls in the same arenas and stuff, you know, back at the in the same day time and didn't know each other, you know, like all, traveling all world. the same circles in Southern California, bull riding, you know, and, uh, just funny, you know, friends, like so many mutual friends in that realm, you know, but didn't, didn't ever really get to know each other until the horseshoe and thing. Uh, so yeah, like Trey's an example of someone in that list or, or, uh, you know, another one was Aaron Fry. Aaron Fry showed up and beat me out of the first uh, West Coast Triple Crown, and I'd never heard of him. But come to find out, he was you know working with Shane Carter. And, uh, but I was so like put off by the fact that I got beat by this guy I'd never heard of that it spurred me on, you know, to to go and take the next four West Coast Triple Crowns. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> funny. It's yeah. what it takes. Yep. And, and so like, you know, and, and we became great friends too, me and Aaron, like, I, I love that guy. Um, you know, so, so that's kind of that list of names, you know, like I, I respect all those people for what, the, what little part of this puzzle they put together for me. And, you know, that when I was writing it down last night, it was crazy how many of them are, are not with us anymore. You know, as I was thinking about it, it's like, man, it, uh, it's so sad, but it, it, but it's so good because, you know, I'm, I'm, as long as I'm here, I'm not going to let any of them names be forgotten. You know, people are going to have to listen to me talk about them. I think that speaks volumes to like the person you are just to put that thought into, you know, thinking of all these guys that have helped you out throughout your career and, you know, brought you to where you are now. Like, you know, that, that probably took some time just thinking about, who are all these guys that have impacted my life that I want to talk about and let be heard, you know, to everybody else out there. I, I no, kind of, go ahead, Riley. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I, it's something I want to kind of ask you like rabbit hole a little bit again, but it, like you had mentioned too, of like, I, it's, it sucks when people don't mention those people, right. That they don't like say, this is the people that opened this trail for me and kind of led me down there. And it's, it's something I struggle with too. Cause it's, and it's something I would like to hear how you do it, that you do a lot of clinics and you've done a lot of clinics and stuff like that. And people have known, like, I've heard, I've never been to one of your clinics, but I've always heard that they were great. What? Put together very good, <laughs> very good clinics. And I'm out of here. It's, it's so hard when you show up, like, how do you go about letting everybody, because it's like, is I always struggle like, okay, I'm in the middle of the clinic and like, I'm teaching this one technique, you know, and it's like, well, I learned this technique from say, 
rapport or I learned this technique from Craig or like, and it's like the clinic can get washed up if you're mentioning that every time. So like, do we, when you start, I, do you start by, I, I always try everybody know. I always try and start the clinic with just a talk, you know, even if it's just a demo, excuse me, or, or a hands-on or, or whatever it may be, you know, I, I need to loosen up. I, I always start off, you know, like nervous and, you know, uh, thoughts all jumbled up and everything. So I, I like to just slow down, uh, introduce myself, kind of, you know, give a, a real as brief as I possibly can summary of, of where I came from. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw a lot of names out in that. And, and I also, you know, since, since you're the clinician and you're the guy on the spot and, and all the pressure's on you, I like to turn it around and put it on the people too. So after I introduce myself and kind of say my spiel, then I say, okay, I want to start right here to my right. I want each of you to introduce yourself, you know, give me your first and last name, um, years in the trade and you know what you're wanting to learn and, and then just go through. And, and so then it's great. Cause then every, every single one of them gets nervous and they stutter and they, misspeak and all that and it, it loosens loosens up the crowd you know because oh. then now they have to participate in the verbal aspect of it but then as everything i'm teaching on the anvil or on the horse uh the way my mind works like if i'm doing it i'm thinking of who taught me how to do that or who yeah. i do that or or how maybe someone else does that different than me with a good result and so i just blend all that in as i'm teaching because i i think if you just only talk about what you're doing like it gets real easy for people to mentally check out, even if they don't want to, like eventually, like you can only hear so much about running a fuller and you can only hear so much about, you know, drawing a clip or trimming a foot. Whereas if you kind of break it up with some personal stories of, yeah, I learned this from Craig Turnka and we were in, uh, you know, Illinois in the middle of a, a snowstorm doing a clinic for four people, you know, and, and I was striking for him and, you know, we did, this is what he showed me, you know, and it, it, it kind of, I think it almost helps those lessons to stick for the people when they actually kind of get a, a view into what you saw when you learned it, like the environment, the person, the, the scenario, like it's easier to remember a story than it is a technique. So if you add yeah. the story in with the technique, I think it helps people to take it home better. No, yeah. I think that's a, a great one because it is. It's like half of being a clinician seems like you're trying to be a DJ and keep the party going. You are. There, there's a lot of pressure on you to keep the attention. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, we all want people to go and give good reviews to their friends about it and not just be like, oh, my God, that dude's a narcissist. Every other word yeah. he says, I or me or my like. So that's why I also like to talk about other people, because it is so easy to say, well, I do it like this because I learned this way and I, you know, do this every day and, you know, and that gets old really fast, you know, so, and I, I always notice the people who give, um, give respect to others, you know, like I'll never forget the speech Jim Quick gave when he won convention. Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but uh, Jim got up on the stage there and everybody's yelling speech and all that. And so he goes over there confidently, you know, sticks his chest, oh, yeah. upper lip out. And, and uh, you know, I want to thank the guys who, I should say the men who got me to where I'm at. Mr. Shane Carter, Mr. Jim Poor, Mr. Craig Turnka. And, 
you know, and he, and he, he gives all this respect to them. And, and then he says, and I also want him to, I also want to thank him for not being here. What was that? Flush the toilet? Or is that Road a noise. driving by your trailer, Riley? Yeah. So like mm-hmm. I'm in my shoe and trailer. That's I'm off fun. a logging road. And so these <laughs> so are log fun. trucks just like whipping by every once in a while yeah no, that cracks me up in all the episodes or like you're you're hearing people shooting deer out there with handguns and stuff Dude, like, yeah, it's, we're out here a little bit <laughs> i love it but but did you did you hear that last part that Jim i didn't said? hear the last part of it. i heard him thank you to shane and craig and then not the last part i figured the truck probably drowned it out so so at the end of his speech he said i also want to thank those men for not being here because if they were, they would have kicked my ass. <laughs> you know what it was as, as arrogant as Jim can come off, you know, like he always backs it up with something like so classy and respectful, you know, he, he's a, he's a one of a kind. Oh yeah, I man. Guess. He is. I, you know, that deal, that story I told you where he left me hanging and, and, you know, left my hand hanging out in the wind like that. And, I told him about that years later when we became friends and he's like, that never happened. That never happened. I never did that. I'm like, Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. And you, you were walking away. Like I was, I was ready to have a throwdown, and you just like, off. I'll never forget it. I will never forget it. I, I could smell it. I remember it so well. Yeah. <laughs> it was just another Tuesday for Mr. Jim. Quick. <laughs> That's why he don't remember. I mean, how he didn't yeah. even buy chewing you know he never bothered to look up probably no you know, I, I was thinking like oh like i made you know i did pretty good in the shoe and so he'll he'll talk to me now wrong <laughs> <laughs> did he even know did he even know yeah and then years later my, my partner uh jason harmison asked me to we we went to montana to compete the year before with craig judging and and had a great road trip and a great time and and that old Mon- Missoula, Montana contest was a great one. You know, it was multiple days. It was a lot of shoeing. And it was one of the older contests in the country, too, according to Scott Davidson. Uh, so Jason asked me to go the next year and partner up because they'd have like a two-man, they'd have a three-man, you know, and then a couple individuals. And uh, I says, yeah, I'd like to go. Who's judging? And he goes, Jim Quick. And I was like, oh, you better oh, get boy. somebody else. That dude hates my guts. <laughs> And Jason goes, well, I don't give a damn. You're my brother. You know, we're going to, we're going to do it together. We're, we'll either win or lose together. Let's go. I was like, oh, all right. So, so we went, you know, and, and Jim was the judge and, uh, here I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to go this thing and just get last place in everything. Cause that dude hates me. And I took Nicole, we took Nicole with us and, uh, my wife, we weren't married yet, but, uh, Anyhow, I remember there was some really interesting things that happened there. Um, Jim did a demo the first day, a shoeing demo, and the wind was howling, and there was no structure or anything to, like, stop that wind. It was, like, 40, probably, like, 30 sustained and, like, 40 to 60 gust. And it was gnarly stuff just blowing by. And they brought a horse that, I mean, probably never been hot shod before. It is this, I remember it was this black this black quarter horse, man, it was stout and it was tight and it was short and it was scared to death. And so Jim <laughs> gives a, gives a spiel. He's like, guys, you know, this isn't the ideal uh, circumstance, you know, for a demo. He's like, I'm not making any excuses, but 
I'm going to just get through this. You know, I'm going to kind of do it at my daily pace. It ain't going to be pretty. It ain't going to be fancy. And uh, it is what it is. It's, it's what we got. And <laughs> he trims this horse perfect. You know, I mean, you, you can't find a fault. And I mean, the thing's jerking him, jerking his guts out the whole time. It's hopping around, trying to take off. And then he knocks out these three quarter fullered shoes, goes to the foot, burns them on. The horse is hopping around. You know, he basically just cuts a big, big notch in and then just gets the clip seated. Horse bouncing around. You look like instant wall contact, heel to heel, like with hardly a burner, just shoes flat, foot's flat, done deal. Throws them in the water bucket, goes, nails them on with the horse, dragging him all over, but I mean, just super efficiently nails them on. Nail lines are just, you know, just, they're not like up to the coronary band, they're a third, just a nice ascending third, you know, everyday work stuff. Clenches it up with no frills, but like solid and, and you know, the, there's no foot to rasp off because the shoes fit. And he's he's done in like no time at all while talking and dealing with the environment and, and all this stuff. And, you know, that I'm looking around and half the guys there don't even know what they saw, you know? Yeah. They have no clue the magic that just happened. Like that could have went a million different ways with anybody else doing it. But Jim just slow and steady and efficient, like did it lickety split done. Let's get the horse out of here and let's, you know, talk about some other stuff. And, and then we're, uh, we're all sitting around, you know, having a beer, sitting on the bleachers, talking about stuff later. And what's up guys. Going to take a little minute, talk about some of our sponsors for the show. One of the largest ferry supply stores in the world is stepping up Forging Brains podcast to help you guys by sending you on your way with a cool gift when you use the code BRAINS at checkout. Wellshod carries so many different supplies throughout their warehouse that, honestly, we could probably do a whole podcast just talking about all the different supplies, tools, anvils, all sorts of products that they carry throughout their warehouse. It's insane. If you guys haven't been there, you should put it on the list to go check them out just to go see them, but also to go buy some stuff too. Their recent products they've been making in-house is anvils. They're producing the Scott anvils as well as the new Scott Eden's 200-pound anvil. I believe they've also been doing the Cliff Carroll anvils for some time as well. And John Harshbarger talked about that in his episode previously on Forging Brains podcast. So when you guys go to order with Wellshod, either online or on the telephone, use code BRAINS and they'll hook you up with a free product in your order. And don't be afraid to let us know what that gift is. We're happy to be working with Wellshod because they are invested in this trade, the same as the rest of us, and not just there for profits and money. Plus, I don't know how you can beat that $10 flat shipping they always have. Like, that's insane. Can't get a better deal than that. So either call them up on the telephone or go online at www.wellshod.com. And when you go to check out on your order, use the code BRAINS and they'll hook you up with something cool in your order. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about working with Wellshod. This is going to be great. You know, guys are whining about how difficult their lives are. I remember one guy's like, well, you know, Mr. Quick, you, you said that you don't have to nail on natural balance shoes and all that because, you know, you, Jim had said, well, I live off the land. I, you know, 
I don't necessarily need a whole lot of money. I don't have kids and all that. I live off the land and I don't have to do what a vet says if I don't think it's right. And this guy, you know, he's like, well, I got kids and I got a truck payment and I got a house payment and my wife's in school and I have to nail on natural balance shoes and blah, you know, that was just kind of the, the way people were acting, you know, just yeah. trying in their beer kind of thing. And <laughs> I, I got up to go to the outhouse and, you know, get rid of a beer too and make room for more. And, and, uh, I'm halfway there and I hear some rapidly, rapidly approaching footsteps and I look over my shoulder and it's Jim quick. And he's like, Hey, Travis. And I turn around. I was like, yeah. And he, he goes, he goes, so, you know, it's all BS. Right. And I go, <laughs> and he, he was talking about the clinic and all, like he was trying to set me up or something. And I, you know, this is before the contest. And I go, I go, honestly, Jim, I go, I came here thinking I was going to see and hear a bunch of BS. I go, but man, I'm, I'm nothing but super impressed. I go, you did, you did a heck of a job on that horse, you know, especially considering the circumstances. And I mean, I know I couldn't have done any better on my best day. I was like, I go, dude, and, and I know you don't care much for me or whatever. I go, but I'm here, you know, to get my fifth place if, if that's what you see fit, you know, kind of deal. Like, I just kind of threw it out there, and he looked at me. I was like, you know, I go, I, I kind of thought you were an a-hole, but now I'm now I'm thinking differently, you know. And, and he looked at me. He's like, you're a crazy SOB, you know. <laughs> 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 I this the day before. But I was like, honestly, I go – I got nothing to lose, man. Yet what you did today was nothing short of amazing, you know, on that horse. Uh, yeah, just get through it. Yeah, and and then you know, fast forward to the to the awards given. You know, I'm getting my name called a bunch, and and uh, Jim goes over to Nicole and he goes, "So are you ready to go to England this this next year?" And she's like, "What?" And Jim goes, "That dude's going to England next year. He's going to be team. on the American Farriers team." And then he, he put his arm around me in one picture when I, when I was getting the overall award, he puts his arm around me and he pulls me in close. He goes, you're, you're welcome at my shop anytime Coons. Oh, that's anytime. cool. Anytime. He goes, you're going to England next year. So you need to get by, get by the shop. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I was pretty cool. Like, uh, the hair on my neck just stood up thinking about it. You know, it was, it was a pivotal moment where I was like, wow, the guy I thought hated my guts and would never have the time of day for me just invited me to his house and, you know, pretty Practice. amazing. Oh, it's, yeah, the, he doesn't send those invites to anybody, just anybody at all. Like, no, not no, at all. That's that's. I'm sure that was you're like, I can do this now. It, it like was before that, you're like, I had it in my mind, I can do it, but you're like, I'm I'm here, like it's gonna happen. Yeah, and I there was definitely some times where I I knew I got hometown because of you know like I didn't fit in, I wasn't the. Now, had people got to know me, they'd realize I fit in great because I was, grew up doing the same stuff they did, and I probably did it better than them, honestly, <laughs> but, uh, and to a, to a more extreme degree than a lot of them. But because I dress different, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not going to say it's racism, but it was definitely there was a bias toward me for not being that cookie-cutter dude and the yep. tight wranglers and the, you know, pants tucked into the boots and all that, you know, the brush popper back in them days. <laughs> <laughs> so was there like a particular reason why you decided to like start trying to like dress different or just well it, it was when i it was when i went on hiatus and started partying and you know and you know different the girls crowd. weren't looking for a dude in wranglers and stuff you know and so 
you know, all my buddies were all wearing like kind of the skater look, you know, and we were going to clubs all the time. And, you know, I realized the more you kind of assimilated to that, the better your, your chances were of getting a phone number and, and yeah. you know, maybe <laughs> getting chicks. The situation. <laughs> so I see. I had a lot to do with it, you know, and it was the style I was listening to a bunch of rap and, you know, and, and different stuff at that time. And, and I'd felt like, you know, my rodeo days were behind me and I was just gonna, you know, do that for a while. And, and it was comfortable, you know, baggy, baggy jeans are definitely more comfortable than, you know, butt tight, tight Wranglers. <laughs> yeah. you know, I've always been a bigger guy. So, I mean, I did get to a point where, where the butt tight Wranglers didn't even work anymore because to, to wear the right size waist, my thighs didn't fit in them. You know, I was yeah. looking at a lot of a lot of heavy lifting and my legs got pretty dang big you know so i'd have to wear if i wore wranglers i'd have to wear them sagging you know yeah uh, <laughs> now it's my belly that, that don't fit them well but thank thank god for cinch jeans to come out <laughs> so we didn't have to keep wearing cowboy cuts <laughs> yeah. like, at least the girls got the uh, what were those called the little high waist uh oh i couldn't even tell you <laughs> so popular when i was a teenager uh Rockies. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the girls got the Rockies, so at least like they didn't have like that waistband digging into their hips anymore. Oh jeez. Those are the uh the no pockets ones, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. They look funny as heck when you see them now, but man, back then it was like, ooh, she got Rockies on. Oh, they're back they're back in fashion now though. Too. It's like yeah, it's, they're it's coming back around. Everything does. It's so weird. It is. It's yeah. yeah. Even the dual colored ones and stuff like that's that's the thing. Oh yeah, it has <laughs> patterns. It was like nothing you ever seen before. Oh man. So I see you going back to your uh, notes say, list there. List <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely some things I don't want to miss. You know, uh, I told We're you we taking a lesson from uh, and, and, and Master Kunziagi. Kunziagi. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised Daniel Jones didn't mention that in his podcast. Man, that, that not that I'm expecting everybody to talk about me in all these podcasts I listen to, but <laughs> man, I sure thought Daniel Jones would have thrown old Kunzagi a, a shout out. Kunzagi. We we had us a lot of good times, man. And I remember like that the first time Daniel came out to my house, it was it was crazy. I remember uh you know, he had started coming to WCBs and he was he was rolling with Billy Lewis and, uh, you know, I could see there was like this huge amount of untapped potential in Daniel and, you know, he was doing the Billy Lewis really well. Like he was, he was being good competition for Billy, but not so much for, for, you know, the top, top 10 part of the table or the top 20 at that time. And so, uh, me and Daniel kind of become friends at, at the contest, started talking and, and I says, Hey, you know, why don't you come out sometime? And he goes, all right. And so sure enough, he, he called me up and planned a week. And and he came out. To, I lived in Romaland, California at the time. Had a single wide trailer and uh, one bedroom, you know, and just a couch in the living room. So everybody that ever came out got to sleep on the couch, you know. And, and uh, you know, that was the living room and kitchen combined. And the bathroom was between my bedroom and that. I mean, it was a tiny little thing. And the shop was just... Uh, it was a Coke Forge next to a garage with a carport canopy, like you buy at Sounds Costco. Sounds like mine. No tarp. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, there was no tarp because the sun would eat it in about you know two months. Yeah. So, 
that was the shop, you know, and the, the power tools and stuff were inside the garage, but it was way too hot to, to work inside there. Um, so Daniel comes out, man, and, and he and I, we like to drink a lot, and we were, Daniel and I were always never good for each other. In, in that I was kind of wondering. He was like one of the few people I've ever met that could like hang with me all day, mm -hmm. all night, all week, you know, and, and so we would Getting just push it. each other in, in every way. And man, we shot horses. We, we worked in that forge, like until the sun would come up after work and then sleep an hour and go to work again. And then, you know, come stay in that forge till the sun came up again. And we, we even thought we discovered a new species of bug <laughs> uh, called ant lions. But, you know, Daniel and I spent like hours trying to dig these things up. You ever see them little like conical shaped holes in the ground, like around the base of trees? Yeah. yeah. Like, perfect little conical. Like, it looks like you took a, a top, like a top that you spin and jabbed it in the ground. Like we're tripping out on that one night at like four in the morning. <laughs> and so we kind of start inspecting and digging. And next, next thing you know, we find this crazy looking bug in the bottom of one of them holes. And Jason uh, <laughs> Carlisle from Reno was there too that time. We go in at like four in the morning and, and Carlisle's in there passed out and on the floor. And we're like, you got to see this, man. We've come up. And we're already thinking of what to name it, thinking we found this new species of bug. And Jason wipes, up, wipes his eyes. He's like, that's an antlion, you dumbasses. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, what? <laughs> this is before We just Google. discovered before it. Google. <laughs> before Google. Yeah, it was before Google. Yeah. And Daniel went so hard uh, that week, and he needed a tool and fuller block. You know, we were starting to do more tool and fuller stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I had, I was so fortunate, you know, to be around Dallas Morgan. And Dallas Morgan had showed me so much, and I wasn't ready for it. Like, I met Dallas almost too soon, you know. I, I wasn't ready for what I was able to witness. But he had this tiny little shop, his little block building it wasn't even 10 by 10, I don't think. It was so small, but he had all, all the shoes from people he'd met up on the walls. And I, I was always focusing on these Tool and Fuller shoes. I'd never seen anything like them. And so I was like, what is this? And Dallas was like, oh, that's a, a Tool and Fuller Hunter Front made by Dave Smith. I'm like, oh, wow, who's that? And he's like, oh, you don't know who Smithy is, you know? And I'm like, no, sounds like a cool cool name. I wish my name was Smithy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And he's like, oh, that's the hunter shoe. And yeah, like that guy's the hunter shoe and God in England. Like that dude has won so many national championships, hunter shoe and championships. Like he is the man. And, and I'm like, well, how do you make a shoe like that? And so he shows me all his kit, you know, and he's like, oh yeah. You know, when I stayed over in England, uh, me and Smithy made this block, you know, out of, off of his block. And I'm like, well, how do you even do that? So he tells me and, you know, I never even seen him make one, but then years later, uh, after Dallas moved to New York, I hit him up. I was like, man, I really want to learn to do that Tool and Fuller stuff. And he just sent me all his stuff. I was like, here, have fun, knock yourself out. And, and so I started making them before there was any contest for them, you know, just, just because I loved that shoe and I wanted to figure out how to make out of that. Curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd make them things by myself, no striker, just, you know, hunks of dog poo throw them on the ground and just, you know, keep going until they finally started looking like something. And, and then, you know, lo and behold, you know, I make the AFA team and, and that first year I did, they had a, a special class that year where you made the, made these shoes at home and brought them in to be judged 
kind of like a mail end like Calgary used to do, but it was bring yeah. it with you. And it was a tool and fuller cock and wedge, and it was a um, German Army hind with the mass lot quarter clips and the fifty thousand nail holes. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, between practicing my shoes for for Stonely, and and all that, I would make tool and fullered shoes in between my shoes, you know, kind of for a mental break when I'd kind of get sick of mine. Then I'd make those, and then I'd make the German Army shoes, and. And it, that ended up being an amazing thing because me and Bill went early. We went to Scotland for a week and did the Edward Martin. And, uh, I mean, that that whole trip was just magical, man. I'll never forget it. Just the week that me and Bill spent just getting into trouble and getting lost and <laughs> doing just ridiculousness everywhere we went. It was like watching an episode of Jackass, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Breaking stuff, hurting each other. You know, getting in trouble, you know, for going into a castle that you're not supposed to go into and security showing up. And <laughs> Who did you get that. to stay with when you were there? Oh, uh, they, uh, me and Bill in Scotland, we stayed at this uh, bed and breakfast on a little farm um, close to the ferry shop. And it was a family that, that would normally, they would host like apprentices and stuff for the ferries and give them a place to stay. Okay. So uh, the Ferry Brothers hooked us up with them, and it, it was a really cool place, really good people. You know, had had a good breakfast for us every morning and dinner waiting for us whenever we showed up at night. <laughs> so cool. 4 a.m. But, but that was such a cool trip because that's when I met Devin Carrera and Ian Gijax. They were They were like, I don't know that they were apprentices, but like they had just made, They maybe Devin was an apprentice still, and and Ian had just got done with his, and, and I was so impressed with those young dudes, man. They were so handy and and uh, just super fun guys to be around. And, you know, me and Bill hit it off real good with them, and, you know, those guys to this day I could call. I could call Ian, and, and whenever I check on Ian, you know, it's like it's like talking to a brother, you know, that I haven't talked to in a few years. Like, we were just right there where we left off, and, and uh, you know, like Devin was a little wild man. He was super wild, but he he took him a while because of how wild he was. But he's become super handy, such a good horseshoer. And Ian Ian Gijax is uh, he's in my opinion probably one of the best horseshoers on the planet. Like really? that guy, when he when he's on, he can shoe a foot. I mean, it is artwork, you know. But um, he he's got a real bad back now and and had a lot of problems, so he's not. You don't see his name like you used to, but I mean, I've seen him do jobs at Calgary, like as a rookie, just showing up there, like laying jo shoeing jobs on the floor that should have been winning, you know, but yeah. maybe, maybe weren't getting the look because of the name, you know, the name wasn't quite known, but I mean, that dude can shoe with the best of them. He's, he's amazing. Uh, and, and Devin, he married the prettiest girl in Scotland, so I was, I was proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> he did good there. All right, so so I, I kind of briefly mentioned, you know, being fortunate to grow up around that greatest generation. You know, my I, I wanted to yeah. talk a little about my grandpa Howard Hardy. He had uh, he had five. There was five of of uh, including him. There was five brothers in the Harvey family. Uh, the oldest one, Kenny, he drowned in in uh, Lake Arrowhead when he was in high school. So he didn't he didn't get to go to the war. Um, but the other four brothers, um, my grandpa Howard, his brother Harold, 
and his brother Bob and his brother, little brother Claire, they all went into different branches of the service, and, and they all enlisted and went and fought in World War II. My grandpa was on the Philippine Islands running a tank, and uh, my Uncle Bob, the oldest, he, he was in a uh, flying fortress as a belly gunner flying missions over Germany. Um, and then Uncle Harold, uh, we called him Hal, he was on Iwo Jima. He was a Marine. He helped fight to take that, that island of Iwo Jima. And that, if, if people out there hadn't, hadn't heard about that, you ought to look it up. Um, there's movies on it. There's books on it. That was a, that was a game changer in World War II. It was an extremely bloody battle. It went on for six weeks. And I think there was, yeah. I think we lost 65,000 American troops and, and then they killed 22,000 Japanese. Holy shit. I just recently listened to a, a Sean Ryan show podcast with a, a man that was a flamethrower operator on, in, on Iwo Jima. And uh, as an amazing podcast, this guy is almost a hunter. I think he's almost a hunter now and he's sharp as a tack. Uh, he talks about what it was like growing up, you know, in the Great Depression and, and how they survived and and then, you know, going into World War II leading up to Iwo Jima. And then as a flamethrower, your life expectancy was 40 minutes, I believe. That was average. He's the only flamethrower that, that survived that battle. Yeah, it's, really? it's a gnarly podcast. So anybody, I, I hate to hate to give you guys any competition, you know, but at Sean Ryan's show, I think it's, Sean Ryan. Yeah, it's one of the more recent episodes. You know, the the gentleman who was a, a on Iwo Jima. It's an amazing. Yeah, there's a couple like firsthand books that are written on Iwo Jima that are really good, and uh, I think Jack Carr did another podcast with one of the survivors yeah. from it. That are the firsthand stories. Yeah, are my, my uncle Hal that that was on there. He he was filled with shrapnel. Like his whole life, he was having to go in and have shrapnel removed and. Uh, and it came from a hand grenade in a foxhole, you know, and the, uh, most of the time they would have, they would catch, they'd find them and throw them out, you know, before they exploded. And I guess it was nighttime and they heard one come in and, you know, they scrambled to find it and couldn't find it. And then, you know, at the last second, his, his partner in the hole with him dove on top of it and it wow. blew him apart, but it filled my uncle Hal with shrapnel. And, uh, I mean, and then Uncle Claire, the baby, he was he was in the Navy, so he he saw a lot of a lot of action too. And you know, the one Uncle Bob that was in the Flying Fortresses, he'd been shot down a few times, you know, behind enemy lines and stuff, and and kept going. And I mean, he moved up to your neck of the woods, man. He when he got out, Uncle Bob, or they had the deal where they'd give uh, the veterans forty acres, hmm. or eighty acres, yeah. maybe it was. And and so he, yeah, I think. Yeah, he he took his he took a, took him up on it, and he moved up to Walla Walla, Washington, and and started raising alfalfa, and and he turned that whatever it was, forty or eighty acres, he he turned it into an empire. You know, he he ended up you, you know with thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of alfalfa and potatoes and onions, and you know yeah, made made heck now. for all his kids, and you know it's it's an amazing. I, we used to go up there when I'd get to go with my grandma and grandpa as a kid. We'd jump in the truck, dragging a fifth wheel RV, and leave San Jacinto, and drive our way up through Northern California into Oregon, and then stop and visit my grandpa's older sister. And uh, uh, she was in McKenzie Bridge, Oregon. They had a lodge there, and and the 
Mackenzie River ran right through their lodge. They had a little island with a rope bridge that went out to it. And I'd, I'd spend days out there fishing, catching big old trout and stuff. And amazing yeah. place. And, and then we'd leave there and head up to Walla Walla, Walla Walla and uh, Kennewick and hang out there with our family and swim in the Snake River and stuff and fish in the fish in the Snake River. And then also in their irrigation ponds, they had some really good good-sized uh, bass and stuff stocked in their ponds. So, so that was really cool as a kid to just, oh, yeah. just be around those men, you know, who had been, they'd been through unimaginable things, but they were uh, like the kindest, most loving, caring, hardworking, stoic people you ever met. They never complained about what they did. They, they all looked at it as, a, as their honor. You know, and, and it wasn't even, I'd never really hear people say thank you for your service back then very often. I, I think it was just a known thing that they were appreciated. Or now it's like, you know, you hear a lot of people say, hey, thank you for your service, which is awesome, and I think we should all do it. Um, but it is sad that, you know, like our government and, and kind of probably, you know, a large percentage of the people in this country don't appreciate what our veterans have done, you know. They, no, not at all. Yeah, it's it's a weird. It's it's crazy too. Those guys were very much so like like your grandpa's brother is a perfect example of like came from not very much and was like no work was too hard to build an empire for him. Like it was just no like he it wasn't a big deal to him that he came from not much to build a whole yeah. empire into a place that he didn't yeah, grow their, up from. Their dad, like their dad, um, his name was Caleb Harvey, and he was the California state vet. And he had a section of land kind of in the Norco Corona area, uh, Wineville, it was called. Um, and he, so he farmed a section of land there with, with his boys. And they were the, I mean, they had like a wagon, but you'll see pictures of them, them guys as teenagers out there with their shirts off. And they'll have the hay stacked 20 foot high on the top of that wagon, you know, with, with a four horse draft horse team hitched up. Work. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. and just, just getting after it, you know, and that, that's how they grew up. They were, they were brought up, you know, to work hard, you know, oh, yeah. they didn't have the tractors and all yep. that. Like they, you know, they, they did everything by hand, you know, maybe with a horse dragging a plow, but that's, that's what they did. So, and, and you think about, it, I never really thought about this part of it until I listened to that podcast with the gentleman that was the flamethrower, um, like he said, he goes, none of us had ever been anywhere. You know, when we, when we joined up and went overseas, most of us had never been out of our neighborhood. You know, and I, back then, travel wasn't easy. Like, if you got, you know, 20 miles away, that was a big deal a lot of times, you know. Not everybody had a car, and, you know, there's a lot of still traveling by horse or on foot. A lot so, of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about that. Like, they couldn't just jump on an airplane and go stay with their grandparents back east or something you know like they pretty much only knew what they they only knew their towns and stuff so imagine you know that kind of adds to like the fear of it like not just the fear of going to battle but the fear of like never having been anywhere and now you're like in a different country you know that, that was something that, yeah. that was something that those those men did you know that it was amazing you know and 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 most of them just came back and went right back to work you know like what what's next no, let's get there's yep. not much time left let's get it done yeah let's build something and you know like my grandpa harvey he he was amazing i i, I grew up 
when my parents divorced, I lived with my mom and stepdad, Tony, um, from the, you know, the age of five or six or whatever till um, my junior year in high school. I, so, so once I got into high school, I'd go spend the summers at my dad's, you know, as much of the summers I could because I was learning to shoe and I was, you know, training horses, learning to break and train horses and all that. And, uh, so I would kind of get to go for the whole summer because I was learning something um and my the summer after my junior year i was done like in my mind i was done with school and i i knew what i was up to i went to my dad's that summer and i was like i'm not coming back i didn't tell my mom that though (laughs) did (laughs) you ever go back yeah once i started getting those calls from her that hey we got to go get you registered down at the high school and all that and and i was like well mom i ain't coming back and i ain't going to high school and she was like hell you aren't and we we hashed it out and it was it hurt her pretty bad you know and she 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 uh she had a hard time with it but i stayed there at my dad's and went and enrolled in the continuation uh high school where i could do kind of a work experience deal i could go i could work four days a week and then go to school one day a week to turn in all my my homework and it was super easy i i got I made up all the stuff I was behind on and got done in like a matter of two months with the whole year. And I was just yeah. shooing, you know, I was shooing every day. I was riding bulls, I was roping, just living the dream with my dad. You know, it was so awesome. Uh, you know, going, going shooing every, we'd go shooing every morning. We'd normally leave, you know, and we'd shoot till like noon or so. And then we'd come home and have lunch and, or, or we'd come home and saddle up horses, bid them up, you know, tie them up, sack them out, whatever, then go eat lunch while they'd turn circles. And, and then we'd come out and, and ride them for a while. And, you know, a couple hours on the horses we were working on, you know, that we were training or whatever. And, and then we'd, you know, load up our rope horses and go roping that night, you know, it was, it was so awesome. And then the days we didn't go roping, I'd find a way to get to a bull riding arena somewhere and get on some bulls and, uh, I had a sweet, sweet gig worked out with a couple of the stock contractors that had bulls locally. Uh, Smiley Moreno came in and, and was keeping bulls at a, at the Winchester Arena down the street. And, uh, you know, I didn't have much money. When I'd work for my dad, I'd get a dollar a foot. And that was, that was pulling, knifing, shaping the shoes while he was trimming, and then clenching and holding the horse at the same time, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'd get a dollar for that, but then, you know, he's when I got to the point where I could get some trims and stuff that started helping out, but, um, I'd go to that, I'd go to that bull riding arena and, you know, pay 15 bucks to get on a bull. That was a lot of work to get 15 bucks, you know? And so Smiley found out that I was doing some trimming and and some shoeing and he he says, Hey, you want to work a deal? I said, sure. And he goes, well, if you'll trim the, the uh, bucking horses and shoe the pickup horses, he goes, you can get on any of the bulls you want. And so that, that became like an account, you know, I'd go trim the bucking horses. And, and How would uh, you trim the bucking horses? Just the way you trim any other horse. Get underneath them and get it done. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> I have to put a lip chain on one or two, you know, but you get around them. That was <laughs> one way or another. My, my dad... When my dad seen that I was serious and I was going to shoe horses, uh, I don't know if he ran an ad or what, but suddenly we had an influx of new uh, accounts that had the rankest horses on planet Earth. I think he just put the word out, you know, for it because he wanted to get me. He wanted to learn me to get by those bad horses without getting killed, you know, so 
I, I remember this one place, it was a, a barn full of national show horses. You know, they're, they're half saddlebred, half Arab, I think. And we... Yeah, half, quarter yeah, devil. Satan, Satan on hoof. So we walk in this barn and I'm looking up at these horses at their big old heads and they're like supposed to be two and three year olds. And they look like they're 18 hands. I'm going, what the heck, you know? And then come to find out it's because they've been in those stalls since they were weaned and nobody's ever been inside to clean the pen. So they're oh, standing God. on a, you know, a two-year-old mountain of, of manure. Jesus. And, and that was one of them deals. My dad, those horses never had a halter on them. And so my dad would step into those, you know, 12 by 12 stalls. And I mean, it was like watching a cartoon. Just the horses were literally running with their feet on the wall, uh, running circles <laughs> around him. And suddenly, you know, he'd catch them in a, in a chokehold and bring them, bring their nose around and twist them in half and, boom, a halter and a lip chain would be on him like magic. And he'd be like, all right. And, and I'd come in there and trim them with him holding them. And I mean, they would, they would just, they, they would blow up. Stuff would go every which way, but I never got hurt because my dad was such a hand, you know, he could just guide that, that chaos and make it controlled chaos. You know, they might jump over the top of me, but I'd never get scathed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that he would get so you know bucking horses were nothing compared to that you know imagine so <laughs> been touched god damn <laughs> especially especially practice pen bucking horses that are just getting bucked like they're happy to stand probably for the most <laughs> part like they're pretty yeah. cool with like i just gotta chill i had a harder <laughs> time shooting some of the pickup horses than i had with some of the bucking horses i mean they're worth like you wouldn't want to start a fight with any of them bucking horses. That was for sure. But if you kept your mouth shut and kind of found their comfortable spot and eased your way around them, it wouldn't be too bad. But if you did something dumb, there's hell to pay. Yeah, I bet. You know, like huh. you, you definitely could get your head kicked off in there. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah, just just the way he brought me up, you know, it's it's one of them deals. He knew life was hard and and it was gonna never be easy. And so he figured, you know, like let's just let's just teach this kid to get through the hard stuff, you know, safely and, and then see what happens from there. Um, but what were we talking about before that? Uh, uh, you're talking about your grandpa. Oh yeah. It was, it was more my living situation where I was going with all that. So I, I moved in there with my dad and I, I hadn't, I was maybe 15 when I moved in there. And then I remember I, I got my first truck when I turned 16. I bought, bought uh, his dad's truck, my grandpa Sherman, who was also in World War II. I think he was on in the Philippines also. Not sure. Some It was some kind of a jungle-type environment where he was. I know that. But he, he never talked much about stuff. He was a pretty quiet guy. In fact, he didn't have a whole lot to say to me until I, until I became a horseshoer and I started making shoes. He thought that was pretty cool that I was making shoes. And I'd bring him by, you know, and, and he was he was pretty pretty happy to check them out, hang them on the wall of his little shop. He was sharpening like scissors and clipper blades and stuff at the time, and so you know he was a craftsman. You know he'd like to make like a picture frame or or something like that, you know, and take pride in doing something. And you know he could fix anything during during the depression and all that. Uh, that side of the family lived in Ohio. My dad's side of the family was around Columbus, Sydney, Ohio. Uh, the stories my grandma Coons would tell were pretty amazing, you know, of growing up just so poor, like starving to death, but didn't know you were starving to death. You know, like you only, they only had to eat what they grew, you know, and 
they had no water to irrigate, like you'd, she'd say they'd be out there irrigating with coffee cups, you know, like go down to the river and, Jeez. you know, fill up a bucket and then take a coffee cup and just individually water each little thing. And it's crazy stuff. Unreal. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I got my truck, got my first little truck is an 84 Mazda B2000 and uh got a got a tonneau cover on the back you know that's the kind that pops up you know it's it's attached yep. at the head it pops oh, yeah. up and i built shoe racks in there and and so we we end up putting my dad's stuff in there and i cruised him around for a while while he was having transmission work done on his truck and i had this girlfriend as like my first girlfriend and uh, she lived over next to my grandpa harvey that's how i knew her i knew her from that and i knew her from ffa she, she went to a different school, but we always seen each other at FFA. And when I was at my grandpa's, I'd see her out there riding her horse and all that. So um, I went to went to take her out on a date one night in my new truck with my dad's shoeing tools in the back. And uh, I, I called her house. I stopped at the payphone, you know, to call her house and see if she was ready. No cell phone, no pagers yet. And uh, her parents, I'd never met them. But her dad looked pretty scary, I noticed. You know, he's a pretty mean-looking dude. So I called, and they're like, no, she ain't ready. It'll probably be a half hour or an hour. And, and I started thinking my Uncle Dave Harvey, like he's been giving me a hard time every time I see him because I hadn't – or every time I talked to him, he's giving me a hard time because I hadn't uh, brought my new truck by to show him. You know, he, oh, the he old Mazda. Like, see that new truck of yours come by, and I never had. So I thought, well – I don't want to go sit at this girl's house with these people I don't know and the dad looks all mean and I'll just go see my Uncle Dave on the other side of town and show him my truck, you know, quick little decision on the fly kind of thing. And so I head over there. I end up getting in a wreck on the way to his house. I got oh, shit. by a lady running a red light and I mean just folded my truck in half. If I had a passenger, it would have either cut their leg off or killed them. Like my head went through the window uh, when I, when I'm standing there talking to the lady that hit me afterward, this dude comes walking over and he's carrying my dad's anvil and he's like, is this yours? <laughs> and it's a, it's an 80 pound coleslaw, old, an old coleslaw when they were actually forged, you know, with a wrought iron base, wow. he brings it over. He's like, is this yours? And I go, yeah, where'd you find that? And he goes, oh, I was sitting at the, the little outdoor, uh, restaurant right here by Steve's burger. And it landed right next to me. And the horn went into the concrete. Oh, so it wow. flew out of the pickup truck bed. And I mean, just barely missed killing this guy. Well, he's lucky to be alive too. <laughs> he's lucky to be alive. Yeah. And, and man, that was a man. I had to call my dad and, and tell him. And he came down there and I mean, just about whooped the cops because the cops were telling him how it was my fault. And uh, he was like freaking out. And I had to calm him down and then, then we get back to his house and then he's going to come after me. You know, I had to lock myself in the bathroom and my stepmom, my stepmom saved my life. She's like, I could hear her out there going, Keith, this is, that's why it's called an accident. He didn't do this on purpose. And, and my dad, is so he's so mad because I wasn't where I was supposed to be. You know, uh, he, was, he was wondering what the heck I was up to, you know? Um, but yeah, that was, it was he, so insurance ended up paying me way more than that truck was worth because it was totaled and uh my dad's punishment was to make me buy it back from the scrap yard and rebuild it no way <laughs> i'm thinking like man i just came up and i just i got three thousand 
paid two thousand yeah. for. I can get a full size now. Hell yeah! And I was like, nope, you're buying this and putting every dime. I end up probably putting another thousand or so into it above what I got paid, and months and months of, you know, had to pay the local fabricator to cut the cab in half. We had to buy a cab, cut the cab in half, weld them together, new bed, new fender, oh, you know, geez. and it was never right after that. Yeah, right. new seats, no. but. It, I had to learn a lesson for not being where I was at or where I was supposed to be at, you know, and, uh, did you ever get the follow-up date? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been better had I never went back. Like hindsight, I should have never went back. <laughs> <laughs> that, that wreck was trying to tell you yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> like, there you was so to... many, uh, signs from above on that thing, on that relationship, <laughs> but yeah. It doesn't mean oh, so. Yeah. He pulled a gun on me one time, uh, held me at gunpoint. Like he was a pretty gnarly dude. Uh, but yeah, turns out your 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 thoughts were right about him. My first impression was dead right about that guy. I called him RoboCop. He'd been a cop and he'd been shot, and stabbed several times, and and uh, had fake hips oh, and fake parts and a couple triple bypasses and. Once we became friends, I would call him RoboCop. <laughs> it's made of all these plastic parts. Uh, yeah, so af after that that time period with my dad, when I turned about 17, uh, the guest house that my grandma and grandpa had, or actually I, I went to house sit for my grandma and grandpa Harvey because they went on vacation up to Oregon and Washington. And uh, so I went and stayed at their place in San Jacinto, and it was awesome. Here I was, had the house to myself, the shop to myself. Um, and it was kind of like I did when I moved into my dad's. I just, I stayed there and then they came back and, and I asked them if I could start renting their guest house. And they were like, sure. So I told my dad, hey, I'm going to move into grandma and grandpa's house. And, and he was like, oh, that's cool. I was, I was 17. I wasn't 18 yet. So, I mean, I wasn't really moving out on my own, but I was, you know, had my own house, started paying rent. And uh, that was a super cool period of time in my life, too, because I was still getting to go live the dream with my dad and rope and shoe and, and all that. But now I was with my grandpa Harvey, Howard Harvey, and he, um, he was, like, always doing tractor work. That was his thing, like weed abatement, and, and he'd go knock down old houses and stuff with his skip loader and uh, burn tumbleweeds. And so he was always doing that kind of stuff, hauling a tractor through town and you know, when I'd have a slow day, I'd work for him. I'd, I'd jump on a tractor and drive it. And I'd done that as a kid, too. There was times I didn't have a driver's license, and I was rolling a tractor through town. But that, <laughs> he, his work ethic was amazing. You know, he's in his, he's in his 70s. But he'd be out there. Um, he'd be out there till midnight, 1, 2 in the morning, working on his tractors every single night, welding, grinding you know just making parts because you know you couldn't find them like it was just amazing to, to see that and and here i had my first shop uh, it, which was a um it was a fluorescent shop light hung from a pecan tree outside of his shop and i had my anvil and forge <laughs> under there and you know i i was i had never seen a shoe made when i started making shoes i'd never never seen the process with my eyes I'd, I'd only ever seen like a clip drawn kind of part of a clip. Um, like I mentioned, that dude shut his forge off. Yeah. So 
here I am living with my grandpa and grandma. I'm out there, you know, working until one or two in the morning, trying to draw clips on old keg shoes and trying to weld bar shoes out of quarter by three quarter and just doing all this stuff. And I've been literally filling, I filled three 55 gallon barrels heaping with these quarter by three quarter uh, attempted bar shoes and open heeled shoes, like stuff you could never nail on anything, didn't look like a horseshoe. Uh, the weld areas were paper thin when I was done and still not welded. And there was literally, and, and then I'd draw a clip every, every square inch of that, you know, shoe attempt would have a nasty, nasty clip sucked out of it. And I'd just be out there next to my grandpa, you know, doing my thing while he was doing his thing. I'd go give him a hand if he needed help moving something or holding something. And, and it was awesome, you know, because we did that for several years several years of me out there pounding on stuff and and it got to when i moved out my grandma was like i can't sleep at night without hearing that ding 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 <laughs> so i got so used to that you know me out there messing around and and you know i started doing some i, I met met up with bob marshall back around those days brought to you by the world championship blacksmiths we're so excited to have the trinka family support what we're doing here it is a huge part of the topics that we have on this podcast, and it's where we've gained a lot of community at, and exactly what they are. They are a community that supports education through competition. So if you were looking for a support system behind you on your journey of becoming a better farrier, go join up and go to an event. You will never regret it. And they've been nice enough to offer us a 10% off on their online store or call-in orders for everything besides competitions and membership. So go ahead them up get some merch and let some people know what you support. Thank you guys. Um, I ran into one of my old buddies, the, uh, the twins, Monty and Jerry Schwanevelt. I'd known them from uh, team pennons and rodeos since like first grade. And, you know, we'd be the kids playing under the bleachers and going back, you know, messing with the steers and all that. And um, I ended up running in and we kind of went to school on and off. There's, there's, um, periods of time where me and the Schwanevelts did a year or two of uh, elementary school together and we did a year of middle school together and then like a year of high school together and uh, you know just just those guys that you knew were your friends for life you know from the minute you met them and they were the cool kids they were popular their their uncle was uh, the most famous quarter horse racehorse trainer of all time Blaine Schwanevelt uh, he's a winner. He maybe some of his records have been beat now because he's been dead for probably almost ten years. But uh, at the time when when he was still at it, he was by far the the winningest trainer of all time. And and so those boys ended up getting into shoeing because their uncle had this big old ranch, you know. And their dad was a manager. And uh, it was funny how how we'd come in and out of each other's lives, but we were always like at the same place, like. You know, that I, had, I when I started riding bulls, this dude that was teaching me, Ryan, he would tell me about the twins from the high desert. He's like, oh, dude, you got to meet the twins. These dudes are sticky. They could ride anything. You know? They just started. And well, come to find out when I met the twins, it was my old buddies from, you know, I've known since first grade, the Schwannies. Small and, world. Uh, so like, all of a sudden, we're, we're riding bulls. Like, we hadn't been together, but we're doing the same thing. Then, uh, you know, we kind of lose track of each other once once I quit riding and all that. And then I got into roping a bunch, and, and next thing I know, I I uh, run into Monty 
one day and, and he's telling me how he's shooing for his uncle now and, and wanting to get his track license, but he's got to learn to forge. And I was already forging, so I was like, dude, I've been forging. Come over to my grandpa's place and I'll, I'll show you what I know. And, and so he came over, man. We started forging all the time and come to find out he's like getting into roping and, you know, kind of in the same place again, you know, like we're shoeing, we're roping, we're forging. And so Monty would, when I was, you know, in the shop under the pecan tree, Monty was there a bunch. And, uh, man, it was an awesome, awesome time. And uh, I got to tell you guys, uh, I got to tell you guys about uh, my first contest. Or, yeah, or I actually, want to hear I, I should back up. I told you the story about my dad telling me to get a forge, you know, and I, yep. I'd, I'd never yep. seen a shoe made. I had no clue about any of that. Um, so I got the forge. I started the, the way I was learning to make the shoes was, um, was looking at Doug Butler's book, you know, the principles of horseshoeing. I'd look at the pictures in there and then go try and put myself in that position to make that move, you know? And, uh, it was it was a struggle. I remember the the very first shoe I tried to make when I got that forge. I, I went to Lee Green Shoeing Shop. I was looking at the bar stock selection and I saw a half round, and I'm like, man, that looks that looks legit. I'm gonna make a shoe out of that. And so I five eighths half round, which is spaghetti. I, uh, Lee yep. Green hooks me up with a Valley uh, Four Punch, Valley Forge Four Punch, a Valley Forge Pritchell. He's like, these are the best. You know, it's the best money you could buy. I'm like, <laughs> all right. I get some diamond tongs. Or no, I'm sorry. I didn't get diamond tongs at first. I got Breckenridge, which was Roy Bloom. Roy Bloom bought, bought Breckenridge, I think. Yep. So I get those. I go home, man. I, I'm like, well, how much do you cut for a horseshoe? Eh, 18 inches sounds about oh, right. Out of 5'8". Throw it into my little valley hot box, single burner. I get a heat about four inches long in the middle of that thing, you know, and I, I didn't even know, like, I didn't even know to like hold the steel up and, and hit into the middle to start the toe bend. I just put it over the horn and tried to hit the other branch down around the horn. <laughs> and it, it, it quickly turned yeah. into like a W, you know, oh, I bet. <laughs> mangled up W looking thing. And I'm just like, what in the world is this? Why is this happening? And, you know, so hours later, I finally get this thing beat around into a giant spaghetti-like circle or, or horseshoe shape. And so then it's, all right, now it's time to punch these holes, you know. So I get that thing orange hot, throw it on the anvil, grab my my brand-new Valley City Head 4-punch, just sink that thing into the anvil, and it gets riveted in there. And I'm beating on that, trying to get it out, and it's just stuck like Chuck. And... Uh, you know, by the time I get it out, it's glowing and it's mushroomed and, and I'm looking at it like, <laughs> man, that Lee Green, he don't, he don't know what he's talking about when it comes to tools. This thing sucks. <laughs> you know, and, and so I, I heat it up and hammer it back flat, you know, and quench it in the water bucket and get another heat on that shoe. <laughs> do the exact same thing, man. I punch me six holes at an orange heat, get that punch stuck every time. The holes, you know, you, like Bill Poor would say, you can throw a cat through that hole, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. and, and so then I get it orange, and now I'm going to pritchel it, you know. And this pritchel looks like, I mean, it's finer than most back punches, you know, from the factory. It's it's a needle. So I get this thing orange hot, go to drive this pritchel through there, get it stuck, it, it folds, it wrinkles, it's riveted. Every hole, 
I mean, I'm like two hours punching six holes. And at the end of it, all I can think is, man, Lee Green, I can't believe he sold me such junk. Barrier Box. First of all, we owe Ferry Box a huge thank you for being one of the first ones to jump on and support what we're doing here with the podcast. If you haven't heard about Ferry Box, it's a bi-monthly box that comes to your door. And it's filled with goods, kind of like the Chewy Box to your dogs, but this one's not filled with crap. She gets advice from the top guys of the industry and puts together a box. You know, instead of <laughs> sucking, you need to learn. <laughs> but I had imagine that. Imagine making a horseshoe having never seen it done. But knowing what it should look like, you know, because of magazines and, you know, I'd ne I'm cold shoeing, so I know what a shoe should look like. But, yeah, what a, what a struggle Process. that was. And it was. It was a good, I'd say, six, maybe a year before I ever got help, six months to a year. Um, just, just two hours at a time. Up. No YouTube, no, no local clinics, nothing like that. And, but by the time that you got some help, you probably had a good idea how to fuck some shit up. So you were like, you, you knew how, like you had an idea what you needed. When, help when I met from. Bob Marshall, it took a year of, of undoing bad habits. When I met Bob Marshall, it was like a good solid year of like unlearn everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> from how you swing your hammer to how you hold your tongs to how you, you know, get rid of that anvil, like everything needed to be done when I met Bob <laughs> Marshall. But, uh, I was riding with, with Dr. Etchart, the vet one day I'd, I'd had a slow day or it rained or something, you know, and didn't have a dry place to work. So I, I jumped in the truck with Dr. Etchart and we were riding around just in conversation i told him i was like man doc i got a forge and i've been trying to learn how to make horseshoes i go this is the hardest thing i've ever done in my life i go it is it's like next to impossible having not seen how to do it and he he looked at me and he goes you never seen a horseshoe made and i was like no and he goes well man i got this friend noel portelli he lives up in sage he goes noel used to be in the motorcycle shop he was a, he was a pro pro motorcycle guy. Uh, he goes, he goes to, he's a certified farrier and he goes to competitions. I'm like competitions. What? Like, what? And he goes horseshoeing competitions. I'm like, what? There's horseshoeing competitions. And he goes, yeah, I'm into this stuff. He goes, I'll give you his number. So he gives me his number, you know, and it mustered up my courage and I called Noel and, and he's a super nice guy. And he goes, Hey, come by my house. You know, and it was like tomorrow, come by my house tomorrow. So I get directions, I go out there and, uh, you know, he, sh he shows me all his stuff. He shows me his shoe display from his, his CF test. And, you know, I'm looking at that just amazed. Like it's all keg shoe mods and I'm just amazed at the work he's done. Just like so clean and precise and I'm like, wow. I want to be able to do that. You know, the shoes aren't all burnt up looking, they're black and shiny. And, and so Noel shows me like, just, we just drew clips that first day. And I, I think he, I think he turned a, a handmade, uh, plain stamp handmade. And I, you know, I was just like, wow, that makes so much more sense now that I've seen it done. And, and then I remember we get done at the, at the end and he, he pulls out a couple of beers and he hands me one and cracks his open. And I'm just kind of sitting there and he's like, what's wrong? You not drink or anything or, or what's the deal? And I go, I go, well, I'm only 17. <laughs> like, oh, you're 17. Holy shit. And I had a full beard, you know, and a mustache and everything. Cause I was, I was tired. 
people's places <laughs> and their first question is how old are you and i'm oh i'm 16 or i'm 17 and then you never hear from them again yeah you know, it would get real awkward when i tell them you know how old i was I, and it, you know i was fortunate to have a, a good hair growth on my face so i could grow a pretty heavy so <laughs> i grew that thing out and then people quit asking me it worked out pretty nice uh but yeah, that so that was my start was was meeting Noel, and so he started letting me go to work with them every now and then, and and I'd come over on the weekends, and and we became good buddies, and uh, he helped me get ready for my first certification test, and uh, told me about the the contest that was coming up down in San Diego called the Fall, or it, I don't even know if it was called Fall Forging at the time, but it was through San Diego County Farriers Association, and so Noel. You know, he helped me get practiced up, and and uh, we went down there together. And I did have some arrogance about me. I'm not gonna lie. I I, I knew I was behind in the in the forging part of it, but I thought I was pretty darn good at shoeing feet and trimming feet. And I was, you know, I knew I'd struggle in the in the forging, but I was gonna show them what time it was on the shoeing. And and so we go down this contest and and set up and start working and. The second class was like a bar shoe class. is is turning like a Delta long heel into a bar shoe. And I run out of propane like right in the middle. Like right when it's time to start, I just run out of propane. Oh, the worst time. And the guy next to me was a guy named Rick Rabin. And, and Rick's like, are you out of propane? It's over there sputtering and I'm cussing. And I says, yeah, I'm out of propane. And he goes, well, jump in my fire here. You know, and so I jump in his. And the rest of that day just competed out of his forge with him. You know, what a great guy to put up with me and, and, and let me do that. Uh, it was fun. And, and then I get in the show and, you know, and it's just, it's heinous. I, I did, did my best, but it was heinous work. And, and, uh, I now could see that because I was looking at my comp at the guys I was competing against and, and almost every one of them was so much better, looked so much cleaner, more, more intentional, better nailing, better clinching, all that stuff and 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 then i saw the open guys and man when i when Blown i seen away. that like those three quarter fuller shoes with toe clips burned in all nice and nail lines that were way higher than anything i'd ever seen and i was just like man i like i saw the writing on the wall like i have a long ways to go and i am not that good of a horseshoer <laughs> and uh you know but the competitiveness the competitor in me was like you know, this is, this is a challenge. So you need to focus and you need to work hard. And, and so that was like the first contest. And I, I met Denny Bryant at that contest. Uh, he was, he was our judge and clinician for division one. And I learned a ton watching him do a demo. And I was so impressed. Here's this little old man, real slight built. Um, but he's swinging like a three and a half pound sledgehammer, four pound sledgehammer to fuller a shoe and he's fuller in a shoe in one pass just boom 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 and he, he you could tell he had real bad shoulders because he'd have to like have to get that hammer real close and 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 then he'd hoist it up and once it got up and he started dropping it it was like a trip hammer just boom 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 you know and he's like why do you want to waste time with them little two pound hammers you know he's like get you a hammer you can knock that in there in one pass and and then I met Jason Harmison at that contest too. And, and that was in 1995. Uh, Is that kind of like the start on why you like, cause I remember you always having like a heavier hammer, almost like a three pounder or something like that. 
yeah, that, that stuck with me. See, cause I'd, I'd watch myself try to fuller and it, you know, it'd be like 10 passes and I wouldn't be near as deep and clean as what Denny was. Mm-hmm. So that kind of got in my head. Uh, but I, yeah, I met Jason Harmison at that contest. I met a lot of other guys, but, uh, me and Jason Harmison, like, you know, it was, it was one of them deals when we met, like we just both kind of feel like we knew each other our whole lives and, you know, like, Oh, there's my long lost brother. I never met yeah. You know, we, we went on to become like best friends over the years and traveling partners and fed off of each other and pushed each other. And yeah, he, he's an amazing man and a great friend. Uh, and a, another thing that was interesting that happened at that first contest was uh, Denny Bryan's family had a shoe and supply down there in Santee, California, next to Lakeside. And they'd bring in, and set up some uh, supplies for sale, you know, tools for sale and whatnot. And I bought a pair of J Sharp tongs for about $65 brand new. <laughs> and, and be, you know, that, that was a lot, 65 bucks for me at the time. Like I, I wrote a hot check to get into that contest. And, uh, you know, luckily it was on the weekend and I'd go shoe a bunch of horses, or, you know, go shoe horses Monday and get a check and put it in the bank before they got to cash my check. Uh, but I bought them tongs and stuff for 65 bucks. And I mean, here, here's a table with, you know, probably a hundred pair of brand new J sharp tongs and tools and hammers and, and all that. And, and the only thing I bought was a pair of tongs, five sixteenths, uh, J sharp tongs, but you know, like a hammer, with even 100, maybe a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. If I had known then what I know now, uh, I could have just loaded, loaded up on that stuff and I could retire now. You know? Yeah. Put it away. Yeah, for it's a rainy so crazy. Day. Uh, <laughs> And so that, that was a good eye opener for that first contest. And then the next one, the next contest was NCC, the Northern California classic 1995. And, uh, Craig Turnka was the judge for the open and, uh, Myron McLean was the judge for division one. And, you know, we had the, we had the, uh, loose shoe magazine. Craig was doing that at that time. Yeah. And that thing was amazing. Uh, the articles in there were like, uh, somebody mentioned it on some of your podcasts before, you know, that's, we'd, you'd basically wait for that loose shoe magazine or that anvil magazine to show up, you know, so that you could learn something, you know, you could learn yeah. how to make a roster, you could learn a, a French hind and you could see what other people were doing. And I mean, that's exactly how it was, man. That anvil magazine, that loose shoe magazine, um, that, that was the guide of how to do things. But it also, like, I'd been reading those things for years, so I knew who Craig was. I knew who Jim Poor was. I knew Jim Quick was. Never seen him, but I'd seen him in magazines and seen him as the team. And and uh, so I go up to NCC with Noel, and I, I took a shoe display and uh, took my test up there, failed it miserably. I remember when we went up there, we stopped at Jason, Smith, Jason Smith's house, Noel had met him and, and uh, they'd kind of become friends or, or acquaint, you know, good acquaintances. And so Noel had phoned him and asked if we could stop in and hang out, you know, for a little bit before we made the rest of the journey up to Placerville. And, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even realize like what a amazing opportunity that was like my second contest and I'm over at Jason Smith's house, you know, Little did didn't you know. Even, like, I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't know what of a, what big, what a big deal it was. Um, 
And, and I was so excited to get to that contest and see Craig and all those guys I'd seen in the magazines. I remember we pull up into the parking lot at the hotel and I mean, there's a crowd, like you can't hardly find a parking spot. It's just, this whole hotel is just full of shoeing rigs. Uh, we go, we're running a little bit late. So we go walking into the competitors meeting in this banquet room. And I mean, it is standing room only. It's so there's like 150 to 200 people in there. And I walk in and that's overwhelming. Everybody's dressed to the nines and above all the heads, I see Craig's mullet and his line, yeah. you know, cause he's a good head taller than everybody there. Oh, yeah. And I can just see him in the back of the room and everybody's just like mugging in around him, just crushing him like a sardine. And I don't know what's going on, but I'm like, I got to get to where that guy's at. And I was a huge Vanilla Ice fan. So, you know, (laughs) Craig was almost like getting to meet Vanilla Ice, you know? Yeah. Incredible. So so I I budged my way through, I I uh, weasel my way through the room, you know, the crowded room and I get over there and they're standing in front of the table with all Craig's specimens. And everybody's just, you know how it is. Everybody's just fighting to get in there and get their hands on these things. And, you know, I'd only seen black and white pictures of shoes like that. I'd never seen them in person. And I mean, at San Diego contest, we had a good judge, but it, it wasn't, I can't remember who judged the open that first year, but it, it wasn't a, like an AFT guy. It was, it was just like an open division. I think it might've even been a local guy. Um, I'll think of it later, but anyhow, uh, I get back there and I see these shoes Craig made. There's like, uh, wedged half by one. Uh, okay. Let me start half by one fully fuller, deep seated wedged bar shoes. Uh, there's roadsters, there's draft shoes with heel cocks. Everything is mirror finished and glossy black. And I'm looking at that and it was a crushing moment because I, like I say, I had filled easily three 55 gallon barrels heaping full of like burnt to a crisp, unwelded, unnailable <laughs> junk. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I'm up two in the morning <laughs> on an early night, you know, three, four sometimes doing this. And I'm thinking like, I've worked really hard. I know what hard work is and my shoes look like, burnt dog poop. <laughs> yeah I, like yeah, they are these they, they don't wear like near these. this you know and i just felt like gosh dang man I, i'll never be that good i'll never be that good is how i felt you know and and i went through the contest and again i wrote a hot check to get into that one uh went through the contest and i i felt like i sucked you know the the um you know what? It wasn't Myron McLean that was the judge at that first one. It was uh, oh, Bill Poor mentioned his name in his podcast. He was from Florida. He told the story about him hiring Jim to go over there and, and critique his work because he was trying to make the team. And, and Jim went through his shoe pile, and it was yeah. like the first shoe looked exactly like the last shoe. Remember that story Bill told? Yep. Uh, James Morgan. James Morgan name. Dude yeah, from man. Florida. I, I remember that now because I, I remember him saying for the shoe and like when we ask questions like, how, you know, people are like, how you want them trimmed? He's like, if it's loose, take it off. If it ain't loose, don't take it off. <laughs> you know, which to me was a profound statement, you know, because I was like gutting feet, like 
I mean, (laughs) like you could eat your cereal out of them things. Uh, so I was just like, only take off the loose stuff. What the heck? Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, and, and, and so I go through the contest, you know, and, and NCC was such a big deal back in those days. It was like the next biggest thing to convention. Uh, there would be three covered arenas filled with each division. You know, you'd have, you'd have 40, you know, 30, 40 division one, you'd have, 20 30 division two and you'd have you know 30 40 division three everybody who was anybody was there uh you know i i remember being in that meeting room seeing stan huggins bob medeiros uh jason smith craig turnka jim poor jim quick shane carter uh carrie zess dallas morgan was there like just everybody who i went on to learn and 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 learn from and respect and and all that they were all there at the second contest i went to you know all the all the heroes of the trade so i went through the contest i i did better than i thought i did i actually got my name called like once or twice and got a little check you know for like fourth place or something and and they had uh the contest over a couple days and then they had like a day or two of of uh, clinics kind of like convention you know and uh I remember there's sheets to sign up for hands-on clinics with the judges. And so I looked at, at Craig's and, and it was like, you know, sign up for a hands-on clinic with Craig to, and write down what you want to work on. And so I, I wrote my name in there and, and I wrote that I wanted to work on bar shoes and welding. And so the way they set it up was we used, and this was intimidating for me, we used that upper arena where the Division Three competitors worked and uh we used their equipment so they had all the open guys nice equipment all set up in a big circle and little did they know you were coming into town (laughs) yeah so i i go and i find an anvil you know and i'm I'm like i don't want to hurt this guy's anvil i don't want to mess up and and i get set up and craig's standing in the middle he's like you know just kind of get going on what you guys want to work on and i'll just spend a few minutes at each anvil i'll work my way around to you but just you know keep busy in the meanwhile so i'm like all right i'm gonna get going on a bar shoe (laughs) and the way it worked out was craig started at the anvil next to mine and then worked away from me so i had like the whole i had the whole entire clinic time by myself and i'm like all right i'm gonna get a bar shoe welded and so I start and the first weld slips. I put it back together. It slips. Next thing you know, it's paper thin. I throw it under the truck. <laughs> Grab another. And now he's like halfway around the circle. Grab me another piece of steel. Whoop it around real quick. I can't hockey stick or anything. Uh, bring the welds or, you know, bring my overlap together. Start welding. It starts slipping. Bring it back together. It starts slipping until it's paper thin. Throw it under the truck. Now he's like a couple anvils away. So I'm, and I've got it in my mind. I've got to have something welded by the time Craig gets here. And so now I'm like frantic on my third piece and I whoop it around and I can hear him talking now. He's so close. I'm like so stressed <laughs> out. I'm working at a feverish pace. And finally, you know, I slip that weld for like the third time and I throw it under the truck and I look and Craig's at the anvil next to mine and, and he's wrapping it up. He's wrapping it up. I can tell he's fixing to walk over to my anvil or the station I'm using. I shut off the forge. I threw my stuff in the toolbox, locked it, and I took off running. 
<laughs> so you didn't even take his. <laughs> I was out of there, man. And Just I, like <laughs> all tucked between my legs, I was out of there, man. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Like there's no helping me. There's no I was, helping me. I not let the baddest daddy on the planet Earth see, see me not well to bar shoe. So I mean, I instantly regretted it. I felt like the biggest coward on planet Earth, and it was third. What was it? Uh, that was oh ninety five. It was uh, twelve twelve or thirteen years after that that I learned how to really make a bar shoe. I mean, I, and I learned to weld, and that's a funny story. I learned to weld shortly after that, but I, like, actually true hockey sticking technique and all that, Craig could have taught me that on the spot. And guess what? 13 years later, when I really learned how to hockey stick, guess who taught me? Craig. Craig. <laughs> and I told him, and it's crazy. just like the Jim Quick thing. Craig's like, that never happened. I was like... I, I'm not proud of it, but that did happen exactly <laughs> how I just that's the, the that's truth. Right there, man. I tucked tail and ran like a coward. Uh, yeah, but probably like the 13 years later when he taught when he taught you, you were probably a little bit more ready to receive it at that time. Well I certainly was, but it's one of the things where it's like, man, had I stuck around, maybe I'd have made the team instead of making the team in thirteen years, maybe I'd have made it in eight, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, have to go on hiatus and start partying, you know, for three straight years every day. You know, maybe, maybe it's easy to look back <laughs> and think of the maybes and what ifs, but I, yeah, I do find it incredibly ironic that the guy that finally sorted me out on hockey sticking was the guy I ran away from when I could have got <laughs> it down. Yeah, uh, something else. And and so another here's another amazing thing that happened at that that competition. So. Uh, the open division was having their live shoe and go and my division was done. And so we could go up and watch them. Excuse me. So I went up and I, I just randomly kind of walked up behind a Coke fire and uh, Jim poor, it was Jim poor station and he was working on his foot and back and forth. And so I just, I was like, man, that guy's, he's the man I'm going to watch him. So I, I camped out right there and, and I'm watching him have his go. And, you know, pretty soon it's getting toward the end of the class. And, and he's got the, the specimen was a three quarter fuller, deep seated uh, bar shoe, three eighths, three quarter, a little front pattern. And he had a cracker sitting right there on top of the fire, you know, all finished up as a hammer finish shoe. I mean, brushed up. This thing looked better than all this sandbox crap you see nowadays. Um, this thing was beautiful and it was off the hammer and he's over there, you know, fine tuning his clenching and he's having a good go. It's, it's, it's going like, I'm thinking in my mind, he's got this deal in the bag. His foot just stands out so much. That shoe stands out so much. And he's, he's just going through the motions. Now he's got, you know, five, he's probably got 10 minutes left and he's done. And suddenly I start seeing sparks in between, like I'm watching him and I'm seeing sparks. And I'm like, I look down at the fire and that shoe had settled in and it's sparks are flying out. Fuck. And I don't know anything about a Coke fire, but I'm thinking, I don't think this is right. No. Especially since I don't see the shoe anymore. <laughs> and I don't want to disturb the guy because he's over there sanding blocking on this foot, you know, and 
finally, like, I, I'm just like, I got to say something. So I just yelled, Jim. And he, he looks up at me and he sees the sparks, man. He drops that foot and comes running over and he just pulls out the bar. Gone. And I'm just like, oh, man, I feel Shit. so bad for not saying something sooner. But, I, uh, but you know, what I know now, by the time I saw Sparks, it was too late. Yeah. Uh, and who am I to tell Jim Poor anything, right? So Jim, <laughs> Jim grabs another piece of steel and throws it in there and cranks that fire up, man. And, and next thing you know, uh, he's getting that first heat and... I think there's like nine minutes, eight minutes left or something. Jim Quick's done. Jim Quick comes over and he's wiping sweat off his face. He sees what's going on and he just pops a squat, you know, next to the quench bucket and uh, watches the clinic ensue. And Jim gets this, I mean, he gets that thing orange hot from heel to heel, uh, whoops it around, hockey sticks it beautifully, scarfs it, overlaps it sticks it right back in the fire with no flux, brings it out, does a one-heat weld at a white heat, fullers it, punches it, and deep-seats it in one heat, and is done. And the whistle blows. And it's, a, I mean, it's like a nice-looking shoe. And the whole time, Jim Quick is just sitting there, like, telling him, like, slow down, man, breathe. Like, calm down. You got this. And I, I'd, never seen, I'd never seen that in rodeo or anything where a competitor's like, you know, giving good advice and like helping his friend, his fellow competitor get through something. And so Jim, Jim poor sticking that, that shoe in the quench bucket. And he looks up at me and he goes, I hope Craig tests that weld. I didn't know what the hell that was. <laughs> yeah. Like I hope he hits that thing with a hammer. Cause it's freaking welded. Yeah. And he, he comes second. Oh shit. He finished second. Carter won it. Oh Yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember sitting in the banquet, and I didn't really know much about Shane because Shane had taken a few years off, I think, for kids and stuff. Um, and so Shane was – it turned out that was like his first contest back after a little break, a couple-year break. And so when they, when Shane won the overall high point, man, he stood up and hooped and hollered, and uh, he yelled, I'm back, baby! <laughs> Badass. I'd never even heard of him, and he just beat Jim Poor and, and Jim Quick and all. Yeah. Oh man, I know the name now. Experience. That'd have been something to see because Poor's yeah. fast moving under normal yep. speed, but <laughs> not even trying to hustle. So it's like I bet he was yeah. flying. Oh yeah, and we, you know we didn't have the match plays and all that back in them days. So I mean, and I mean, here I'm a guy that barely just started seeing shoes get made by other people. I've been to two contests now, and that's like my education. And, and to get to see that firsthand was, I mean, is so amazing. And then to later on become friends with all those guys. And I mean, what a what a ride that was, you know, is is something else. Yeah, you're looking at it, you're like, man, I spent six hours punching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is this is different. Yeah, and, and tucked my tail and ran away from a, a free education from Craig yeah. Turner. Yeah. You know, like God dang, man, of all the stupid things a guy could do, like tucking tail and running, that's it right there. Uh <laughs> and, and like great. I say, I, I felt really defeated because I, I saw how, how nice everybody's work was and how crappy mine was. It was shortly after that, like within a month or so, I'd, I'd gone into the shoe and shop, Lee Green shoe and shop in Ukaipa, and I was going to buy like my 20th can of Flux, you know, and 
I'm in there getting my sure weld and, and Lee Green comes up and he's like, you must, you must have a lot of horses in bar shoes, Travis. I go, no, I don't have any in bar shoes. Why do you say that? He goes, well, I've never had to buy so much flux before to keep the stocks or the, the shelf stocks since you started buying it. He's like, you bought more than I've bought in my life. And I said, well, to be honest with you, Mr. Green, I said, I've never got a bar shoe to stick yet. And he goes, what? Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm just trying to learn. He goes, come into my office. <laughs> I, I go into oh. his office and he just tells me how to weld a bar shoe. I, I, he doesn't even show me that. He just tells me. And I go home and I weld my first bar shoe. Easy as that. <laughs> I mean, I got like a half a ton of unwelded bar shoes sitting here that ran away from Craig Turnkett, all that. And, and all I needed to do was just ask. Ask for yeah. a little guidance. Oh, yeah. Just say just say um, something. Stupid, like, hard-headed, you know. That was in the hard time. Man, like using Sherweld. Sherweld's not very easy. No, especially in a small burner forge, it's, you know, with no door. Yeah, with no door. Barely gets hot enough. <laughs> it's like those hot, yeah, those hot boxes were no door, nothing but oxygen blowing in there. Well, I ain't going to lie. There, before I got that forge, there was nights out at the bonfire with my dad where I had a, I had a St. Croix, you know, size four plane with the heels in the, in the wood fire trying to heat them up and, you know, never even could get a glow in them, you know, but I was trying to hit some hot steel, you know, as a kid. Yeah, the hot yeah, box. the hot box is like an inferno. Once I got that thing, uh, you know. So, so a few, you know, within a few months, I, I at least learned to weld. And then uh, one of the articles of the loose shoe or, or epi, um, volumes of the loose shoe came out, and Craig had a picture of him standing by Edward Martin's shoe stacks over in Scotland, and that was a moment where. I looked at those shoe stacks, you know, and they're almost all draft shoes with heel cocks and nails. They all been nailed on too. And they're massive. Yeah. I don't know if they're, you know, maybe 10 by 10 squares of, of draft shoes that have been made piles. And, and it hit me right then and there. I was like, I can do this. I see how Craig got so good because what I thought was hard work, three fifty-five gallon barrels, is not hard work. The, the piles he's standing in front of now, that's hard work. And I know I can do hard things. I know I can do hard work. I just have to do a whole hell of a lot more of it. And I have to ask for some help. You know, I, yep. I have to be humble and I have to, I have to actually try to get help because there, there was help out there. Then it just wasn't like around every corner, you know, you had to seek it out. And, uh, my good friend Noel Portelli that had taken me under his wing, you know, shortly thereafter, maybe like in the next year or so, Noel said, hey, uh, you know, I feel like I've kind of showed you everything I can. And that was probably more, you know, maybe maybe he's having a hard time with my thick skull or something. But but he goes, there's a guy up in Anza just up the hill from him named Dirk Ballard. And he goes, Dirk Ballard's like a division two competitor. And he puts a lot of handmaids on horses and, and he's got a lot more experience than me. And, you know, I think it'd be really good for you to meet Dirk and, and start working with him. And, you know, so I, I called Dirk and Dirk says, yeah, you can come up sometimes. So I went up and Dirk said, well, you know, you got any time to come to work with me? And I says, yeah, I'll make time. 
you know, and I, I was pretty full at the time, but I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to see something, you know, so I, I work in like Sundays yeah. now, you know, so I could go to work with, with Dirk a day a week. And, and little did I know Dirk would go shoot at least 25 a day. And that's full, only full shoe-ins we're counting, you know, we're not talking about the trims and half sets here and there. And, uh, you know, he's a, he wasn't a certified journeyman yet, but he, he was a CF and, and he was definitely by far the handiest guy in our, our neck of the woods. So Dirk, you know, took me to work. He had a guy named Dave Stone working for him and Dave was a little closer to my age. And, and, uh, I remember the first day I'm, I'm thinking, well, I can clinch pretty good now. I've been to a few contests and all that. And, and, uh, they just turned me loose on a horse and I clinched it and I was pretty proud. And Dave Stone comes over and he's like, that's pretty, pretty good looking work there. You know, it's pretty professional, but you know, let me show you just a couple little things to kind of get it more to where Dirk wants it, you know? And, you know, so he kind of went through things and showed me how they did it. And it was way cleaner and way more efficient, you know? And, and so I'll never forget that, you know, how, how gently he put it to me. Like he didn't just come up and stick a pin in my balloon and tell me how bad I suck. But, you know, he's another guy become a good friend and, and helped me a bunch through the years. Old Dave Stone, Danny Cadwell. Danny's not with us anymore, but that, that was kind of our group, you know, Noel, me, Dave Stone, Danny Cadwell, Dirk Ballard, uh, you know, and then, then we had the guys down south like Jason Harmison and, and all that. But uh, those were the guys that gave me my start. And Dirk was the first guy I ever struck for. Uh, Dirk, Dirk had me over there one time to his place, and he was going to make some draft shoes. And he says, you ever strike? And I said, no. And he goes, well, pick up that hammer there, you know, and he had me hit some stuff and that felt pretty fun, but I was pretty nervous. And, and then I, I'll never forget, we started fuller in a branch and he's like, all right, come on a little bit faster, you know? So I go a little bit faster and I'm having a lot of glancing blows and I'm starting to really tighten up and I'm getting more and more nervous. And pretty soon, you know, it's like the third pass and we barely scratched that shoe and Dirk's like, come on, come on, hit it, hit it. You know? And finally he's like, you put your purse down and hit it. <laughs> out of that you know I, I don't carry no purse so I rear back and I bring the thunder and I miss the striking head completely oh, and just hit the handle in between the the fuller and his hand and just snapped it just sheared it right off and oh, shit. I, I mean just about broke Dirk's hand he's like ah he rears back and drops the fuller and cusses I mean I'd never, I've only heard him cuss once or twice in my life and it <laughs> that was one of them <laughs> and I <laughs> Yeah. I, I had after that I developed a block you know a mental block about striking I was so scared to strike I avoided it at all costs I avoided two mans three mans everything that involved sledgehammer <laughs> after that deal because I did not want to hurt somebody again you know and I just I'll, I'll save that for later you know and yeah ooh, that, that was something <laughs> and I won't it was the fuller was one of the old school Jim poor fullers that had the double notches, you know, like where you'd mm -hmm. put in the, uh, the little, uh, half round. It had two of them. It was a cool looking thing he used to make yep. Dirk's pride and joy, you know, and I just obliterated. <laughs> it snapped it right <laughs> off. It is, it is uh, like one of the most nerve wracking things as a new guy to get asked by a better guy to strike for him. Like, especially in front of a bunch of oh people, boy. you're like, yeah, 
okay <laughs> here we go i'm gonna yeah. fuck some shit up. you know and, and as the years went by i mean i i almost like i was at the point where i was ready to make the i was like on the bubble of getting on the american farriers team and i wasn't doing a whole lot of striking because i was still really nervous and insecure about it and had that always had that broken fuller shaft in the back of my mind and uh, at, it, a turning point on the striking was when um it was when Craig started doing the Roadrunner Classics, the the precursors leading up to the WCB, and that first Roadrunner Classic, um, that first one I believe was was judged by Shane. Yeah, I think the first one was judged by Shane, if I if I remember correctly. And I'm not. I think Bill yep. won it, right? And I'm. Yeah, I'm not sure who. Who the judge was? I just remember. Yeah, Bill I know. I know it. Jim Keith judged one, and Sh Shane judged one. I think. I think you're right on Shane being the, being the judge. Yeah, I'm pretty sure one. he was, and then Jim Keith might have judged the second one. Uh, but the first night we all gathered in Craig's shop, you know, before the contest, um, I realized, realized they didn't have any fire rakes. They didn't have pokers. They didn't have fire rakes. And so Shane Shane was standing by the forge. He's like, well, we need to make a bunch of fire rakes and, and pokers. Who wants to strike? And my hand just oh, about ripped the computer out of the wall. You were that excited. I almost peed my pants at the same time with nervousness. But I was like, I have to do this right now because I got to get over this. I got to strike fear. people all weekend. Yeah. People got to strike for me. Like... I got to get some practice in and, and what better place than, you know, doing it for Shane Carter in front of all these guys. And I knew he would school me, you know, and he did. And it, it helped and it helped kind of ease the tension of that whole, whole thing. And, uh, man, a funny story from that was, uh, you know, I, I, I knew the guys on the team, you know, I'd met them at clinics and stuff and, and I was their biggest fan, you know, all the guys that were on the team that year. And they, they'd befriended me and started to kind of take me under their wing, you know, especially John McNerney and Todd Walker. Those two uh, really, really kind of singled me out and were like, hey, you know, here's what you need to do. Um, so, so we're at that deal, and I, I got it in my head. I was like, I need a good striker, especially for the pair of Roadsters class. And oh, yeah. uh, I looked over, and I seen Jim Poor, and I was like, man, what better striker than Jim Poor? So I went over and, and said, hey, Mr. Poor, you know, would you be interested in striking? Can I talk you into striking for me? He says, you bet. What go around, you know? And I tell him, he's like, yeah, I'm open. I'll strike for you, Travis. I said, all right, thank you. And then, the, you know, pretty soon it's time, and, and we were over there getting my fire ready, and, and Jim goes, so what do you want me to do? And I says, well, whatever you think, Jim. And he goes, Okay. And so the whistle blows, I mark my steel, I, I throw, throw the steel up there on the hearth, and he just, he's just standing there looking at the fire. And the, time, the clock's ticking, you know, and here sits these two pieces of steel. <laughs> looks back no at me and goes, what do you want me to do? And I go, I go, well, I guess if you want to get a, a toe bump in heat, that would be good. And he goes, okay, yes, sir, and he sticks it in there. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad that's out of the way. I, I can't tell <laughs> nothing you know especially about striking and uh 
So he gets my heat, and he's like, here you go, it's hot. And so I grab it, I quench it out, I bump the toes, throw it back up there, I'm working on the second piece, and pretty soon I glance over, and there sits that that roaster, that, or that piece of bar stock sitting on the hearth. Jim's just got a big old smile on his face. He's like, what do you want me to do? I said, how about a, how about a toe bending heat? He goes, yes, sir, and he sticks it in there. I throw the second one to him, and he looks at me and smiles. I'm like, can I get a toe bend heat on that one too? And he goes, yes, sir. And he made me tell him every step. I mean, even when it first came time for him to start hitting, he just stand there looking at me. And I was like, can you pick up the sledgehammer and flatten this? <laughs> yes, sir. Pop, 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 pop. Perfect. You know, I, he made me talk him through that whole go. And I needed it bad. I needed that bad. And he knew that was something I needed because I was still quite introverted and shy and, you know, and, and, uh, then we turn the shoes in, he shakes, we shake hands. I thank him. And, and he's like, you know, you did pretty good. Those are pretty nice shoes. And I said, well, thank you, man. I, you know, you, you did all the hard work and, and, uh, next thing you know, they get dumped out on the table and we weren't the first go around. We were kind of in the middle of the go arounds, I think toward the end, they went right into first place, like boom. Hot damn. I'm like, Oh dang, you know? And, and they sat there for a while. They paired up perfect, you know, perfect nail fit. They were pretty sweet. You know, I'd been working with Craig a little and, and, uh, Austin and stuff. I'd been getting a lot of good help and, and, uh, they're sitting solid first place for like a go around and then Shane flipped them over and then they start moving down. The next thing you know, they're second, then they're third, then they're fourth, then they're fifth, then they're sixth. By the end of the day, they're last place. And I am so, I'm, I'm, I'm mad. I'm butthurt. I'm like, there is so much junk in front of them. Like what? Stuff ain't flat, like nasty heelcocks. Like I'm. You know, but I knew better. I wasn't going to go up barking at no judge, you know. So I waited till it was all done. And I went over and said, you know, and I didn't know Shane well at all. I, I knew everybody probably better. And I knew Shane at that point. I said, Mr. Carter, I said, you know, would you talk to me about my shoes? I'm, I'm kind of wondering why they went from sitting first place for quite a while down to last place. And he goes, oh, those are yours. He goes, I've been hoping you'd come up and ask a question. Let me tell you something. He brings me down there. And he points to the bearing surface on top of the wedge. He goes, you see that pucker? He goes, that pucker right there, and it's on both of your wedges. He goes, that's going to chew that horse's heels up over the next six weeks. He goes, you made some beautiful shoes, best-looking shoes on the table, best pair on the table, the forge and everything. He goes, those are first-place shoes. But he goes, this right here, that's a last-place mistake. He goes, this Damn. bearing surface means more than all that junk on the other side. And you need to learn that right here and now. And I did. <laughs> Don't learn today. I learned. <laughs> it's it's probably something that still comes into your head when you're when you're making shoes and stuff that you're oh, like the bearing surface. I, when I judge, when I make shoes, the bearing surface is everything. And I, I mean, I took it home and applied it to my work right away, and and I saw the difference. You know, like. You know, I became yeah. extreme, like a lot of people would say Shane is extreme or militant, like in some of his views and, you know, like unyielding. Well, you kind of have to be because that foot is that way. Like there's certain things it likes and there's a lot of things it don't. And I mean, it don't like puckered up bearing surfaces and it don't like sprung heels and it don't like sole pressure, you know, so there, there's certain things like we have to figure out, you know, as horseshoers and, and apply them and, 
You know, I, I think my mind works like that to where things are cut and dry. There's not a whole lot of gray area. Um, I, I like to tell yeah. people, you know, there, in my opinion, there's one right way to do things and there, there, or I'll tell them there's a million wrong ways to do things that, that work, but there's one right way. And I'm, I'm here to kind of find out that right way and figure that out. Yeah. You know, where a lot of people are like, Oh, there's a million ways to skin a cat. Well, I really firmly believe there's a better and a best way to do everything. And that's what I want to learn. You know? And that's yeah. what I want to pass around to other people. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was some cool takeaways from that one, you know, and, and then the next, the next, uh, road runner, I, I had a shirt. Uh, maybe it was that first one. I had a t-shirt made with a picture of Craig from Calgary. No, it was the next one. Cause I was on the team by then. Uh, so I had this t-shirt made from Craig at the banquet and he'd taken the little free cowboy hat they give you at Calgary and everybody had yeah. sat on it. I mean, it, it looked like a Tim McGraw hat, you know, it was just all <laughs> jacked up. And, and this picture of Craig is hilarious, man. He's like, ah, his mouth is all gaping and he's yelling, hooping and hollering. And so I had a t-shirt made with this picture of Craig and I, I'd wore it underneath my hoodie all day. And, and we were doing, uh, watching some demos in the shop. And I was sitting right behind Jim Poor, and finally, like we stood up to take a break. We were all gonna, you know, have a little break in between demos, and we stand up. And I look around. I'm like, all right, now's the time for the unveiling. So I, I rip that hoodie off, and Jim Poor turns around and sees that shirt with Craig on it, looking all goofy. And I mean, he just has a Jim Poor come apart, man. He's slapping his knee, <laughs> laughing. Can't even hardly talk. Next thing you know, everybody's looking at it, dying, laughing. Uh, everybody's like, where can I get one of those? <laughs> Great little dad, Craig, but he loved it too. He wanted one. Oh yeah. I still have it. I'll have to find it. Oh, you do? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh man, I've, send me I've a picture of it. 20,000 pictures of all this stuff. Like I just on my newest phone, I've got over 7,500 pictures on there. You know, so many, like, I think there's over 20,000 now. <laughs> of all these memories and stuff, all these good times. Oh man. Oh, you know, there, there is a lot of things I, you know, I wanted to talk about like the first Calgary and stuff that, you know, and some of them things. And, and I, I do need to set straight, you know, some of them things Ian said, I, I talked about the, the five judge contest. That was something I wanted to set straight. And then another thing Ian said was, you know, he has given me props talking about, you know, when I was kind of doing well in the contest and all that. And, you know, nobody could hardly beat me at the WCBs for a while, but, you know, he, he kind of said I was built for that hour long time frame class, you know, and then yeah. I, I never really, you know, did that well at Calgary because of how fast paced it was. Well, I could see how a lot of people would think that. And, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but, you know, I'm pretty good at that. Uh, but the whole Calgary thing, like Darren Bazin used to always tell me, like, he's like, you are cursed. Like you have, somebody did some voodoo on you when it comes to Calgary. Cause he's like, there is no reason you shouldn't be in that top 10. And like Marshall Isles told me, he said, I, I hold the record for 11th place finishes. Uh, and I, I did uh, one year I, I made the top 10, but as a tie, I tied a guy named uh, Colleen Durrett, I think. Oh, no uh, he was Marshall's, Marshall's old apprentice, and we called him Duck. He was a good dude. He was a really good hand. 
and me and him tied with the same amount of points for 10th place. Well, Duck had, you know, he was finishing like 8th, ninth, 5th, 6th, kind of that back half. Like that was where all his points came from. He was real consistent, though. He got him out of a lot of classes. Well, that year, me and Tim McPhee won the two-man, which was like uh, I placed, you know, top five. Almost all my placings were, you know, in the top five to get all my points. Um, so then when they announced us tied, then they, they uh, said the tiebreaker went to Colleen, went to Duck. And I thought, well, how convenient is that, that the guy running the show, Marshall Isles, you know, his old apprentice makes the ties for the top 10 and he went to the tiebreaker. I didn't even know what the tiebreaker was. So I go over to Marshall and I'm like, what is going on, dude? Why, uh, how'd you fix that deal for Duck? And he go, he whips out the rule book and he's like, well, you're Mr. Rulebook. Look right here. If there's a, oh, if there is a tie for the top 10, it will be broke by class 75. Well, I look at class 75. That was the aluminum bar shoe. And uh, it was in with a um, Memphis hind. And so the way I practiced that class, even though it was run at the same time, I, I made the aluminum bar shoe first. Like I just knocked it out. I had it down to 17 minutes. It was like a 45 minute go. And then I had a ton of time for this uh, Memphis hind or Morgan hind, sorry, Morgan hind. Three by one Morgan hind with big old quarter clip. So I, you yeah. know, I, I had that thing dialed. I had a ton of jigs that I had for making because that was a hammer finished aluminum bar shoe, three quarter fullered with a toe insert. And man, without being able to rasp on that, it was so easy to screw that shoe up, putting that toe insert in. Like you had to hem it and then slice it or slit it perfect, like almost short of what your bar is. Because then when you put your bar in and then you forge it all back together to, to grab your or to grab onto your bar, which is basically a dovetail, you got to forge that insert like a dovetail so that it wedges in in the bottom. Like you're, if, yep. if you don't make that slip perfect, you end up with big old gaps on, on the sides of your bar and it, and it can move and be racked. And so I figured out like a, I made a hemming jig jig that I would, the first step was heat the bar stock, set the toe on the hemming jig, give it a whack or, or vice versa. I'd put, cause you couldn't use a top tool. So I had a, the hemming jig was on a stick basically. And I'd uh, whack that in just perfectly in between my marks and it would hem the perfect amount. And then I'd make my bar and I had a pair of tongs that I could squeeze my bar to put the perfect radius. Like I had that thing dialed. And for whatever reason, I sent my flux and my, my, bar, my uh, welding rod up there and everything ahead of time. And Marshall had it for me and like I kept some tools there and everything so I didn't have to haul sledgehammers and all that. I had a had a little rolling dumpster full of stuff, wire brushes, uh, hot rasp, things like that, you know, to, to kind of lighten the load for me and my teammates. Well, I, uh, I, I'm going to do my weld, you know, and it's all I have to do. I've, I've put my flux on there. I've put my filler rod on and let it equalize to the temperature of the bar shoe. I'm holding it over the fire. I'm watching the clock. And pretty soon I'm like, okay, it's time for this to start glossing up and melting. And it's just dry as a bone and the filler rod's solid. And I'm looking at the clock and now I'm second guessing, did I, did I put it in 45 seconds ago or was it 30, you know? And I'm like playing the mind game. And, and then I'm thinking, no, no, it's been way too long, but it's still dry, it's still dry. 
And suddenly I see the shoe just starting to bend. Crumple up. Uh, oh, man. So I take it, I put it on the anvil, and I put my hammer on it just to try and flatten it back out, and it just crumbles. Disintegrate, yeah. You know, now we're like at that mark where I should be done. It's like 17 minutes gone. Jim Quick and, and uh, Derek Gardner are sitting there watching. Jim Quick runs, gets me a new piece, and uh, I start on that um, Morgan Hine. And Jim throws the aluminum up there. And I'm making the Morgan Hine, and Derek looks over at Jim. He's like, what's he doing? And Jim goes, what do you mean? He's like, why don't he just thrash that thing out and throw it on the ground, you know, just get it judgeable and then get that aluminum done. And Jim goes, uh, Travis, he's, he's here to try and win both of those, not, not one of them. Uh-huh. And that was always my deal. Uh, I never, never, ever let it creep into my mind that I was going to make one shoe just really fast and get it out of the way and then try and win the other shoe. Because that was a big tech, that was a big strategy most guys at Calgary used, and it, it gamed the system. And most guys in the top 10 did that. I never did. I, I wanted to win both shoes in every class, every go, every time, every year. That was my mentality. Uh, that, that aluminum shoe, it, I ended up placing like fourth on the Morgan. And I think I was eighth on the aluminum shoe, and Duck came in like seventh on the aluminum shoe. Oh, just one spot. for the top ten. And, you know, there is a the, – the, the reason I want to talk about the first Calgary was uh, Jim Keith was a judge. I'd never worked in a Coke fire yet. This was 2003. I'd, I'd never used a Coke fire, but I entered Calgary. And uh, – I called my buddy Dallas Morgan. He's living in New York. And I said, Dallas, I'm in Calgary, and I don't know how to use a Coke fire. And he goes, well, I wish I could help you. And I says, well, what if I came out like a week before Calgary, and could I hang out at your house, and, and you show me how to use that thing, and I could practice and all that? And he goes, you bet, man, anything I could do. So I flew out to New York a week before Calgary. Um, Dallas just he gave me a quick tutorial the first day before he took off to work. And I burned up every shoe, <laughs> every <laughs> shoe at some stage, you know. Ellis comes back from work that night. He's like, ah, oh, don't worry, mate. It'll be better tomorrow, you know. And, and so he gives me a few pointers. And the next day, I burn up every freaking shoe at some point, you know. And, and so then Dallas comes home that night. He's like, all right, well, let, let me get in the fire with you. So he, he shows me a few things, and, and it helps a bunch. And the next day while he's gone at work, I, I get a bunch of shoes done, you know, in the time limit. They're not all burnt up. And Dallas comes back and he looks at me. He's like, man, good job, man. The forging's nice and all that. He's like, but you don't have a level shoe on the floor. And I go, well, look at the way they judge, Dallas. Level is only worth 5% of your score. And he's like, or whatever it was. It, it was like worth five points or something. I forget how that yeah. worked. I think it was yeah. like one to five on level where other things were like one to 10 and all that. And I was like, it's not very important. And he's like, Travis, every, every point is important. And if you have a judge, that's a really good horseshoer that really focuses on the foot, that bad level is going to affect your forging. It's going to affect your everything. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that was a good lesson I needed right there is, is never overlook level. And, and that's become one of my biggest focuses because I've learned over the years, that's one of the most important things to the horse. And it's one of the hardest things to achieve in a time limit on top of everything else you're trying to do. I hear so many judges say, oh, well, when it comes to splitting hairs, like level's the easiest thing to fix. Or I hear competitors go, well, level's the easiest thing to fix. Like, why are you so hard on level? 
And I'm like, well, if it's so easy, then why didn't you get it done? Why didn't yeah. out of the hundred people here, why is Chris Madrid the only one that turned in a level shoe? If it's so easy to do, I've wrote uh, NL on more shoes uh, on almost every shoe I've ever judged. NL is my code for not level. <laughs> uh, I, I always joked around. I need to just have a stamp made so I don't have to keep wearing out. Sharp. <laughs> every shoe that comes in because when you truly look at flat there are so few shoes that are flat it is, it is the hard hardest to do. thing to do especially when you have elements like heels um so so dallas tunes me up on all that i go to calgary the first class is shoe a foot three-quarter fuller toe clip make a specimen i don't remember what the specimen was jim keith was a judge and uh, I go up to him, I says, you know, Mr. Keith, I said, you got any advice for a rookie like me? And he says, what are you shoeing, a front or a hind? I said, a hind. And he says, well, I haven't seen your foot, but he goes, almost every hind foot I ever seen, the medial toes cheated. And he said, the medial toes, that horse's point of purchase behind. And he said, you know, and, and the more you cheat the medial toes, the more the lateral wants to flare. And he said, so if I were you, I'd take your straight edge put it in line with the tubial growth of that hoof wall and look, you know, and, and look and see if there's a gap down there at the bottom. And if there is fit your shoe out to where that foot ought to be to match that plane and box it up nicely. And he goes that, you know, that, that'd count for a lot in my book. Well, I get a hind, I get there in my hind foot enough. It's dubbed like that. And, uh, the outside's flared. And so I do everything Jim said and, I turn my shoe into him and he comes by and, and judges it and he hands it back to me. He's like, man, that's beautiful. Good luck getting it nailed on though. There's only a minute left. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so I, I slide under there and I just spike these nails and pull them forward and clench them and get done right at the whistle and uh, ended up third in my first class at Calgary. Oh, fuck uh, yeah. Mark Milster won it and Bill Poor was second and I was third. Andrew Reeder Smith was fourth. And a guy named Cam Russett was fifth, a Canadian, young Canadian guy. And I'll never forget, you know, because I bought that picture. Like, uh, I, you know, my first class at Calgary, and it's a shoeing class, and I end up third. And uh, that advice Jim gave me, I took it home with me, and I started checking all my feet. And I was quarter clipping all my, most all my hinds at the time. And I started putting a straight edge on them hind feet. And sure enough, all my feet were just a little deficient. I'd been riding with Craig a little and seen all the toe clips behind, and I thought, well, it's almost impossible to move that shoe over with a quarter clip, you know, and fit it fuller there. Mm -hmm. So, I, like, all at once, I decided to just, like, put all my hind feet in toe clips, <laughs> like, overnight. I just snuck it on there. I didn't tell a single customer or anything, and I thought I'm going to be losing tons of front shoes now. They're all going to start forging. It's going to be a mess. And I would kind of just question people you know like as as best i could without telling them hey i put toe clips on you notice any difference behind i would just hey like how's joey doing has, has he been all right behind you know and this like six months later after his after his uh hoof wall straightened back out or his, his hoof capsule aligned with his bony column and pam would be like you know now that you mention it, Joey's been like a different horse behind. I normally have to have his hawks injected every three months, and I haven't had to have them done in like six months now. You know, and I just kept getting all this positive feedback without really telling anybody what I did. And, uh, you know, that so that was like money right there, what Jim Keith told me in those few minutes before my go. 
and it, it changed the trajectory of my shoe and big time. It changed my theories and it's something I've been able to help so many people and horses with just by, you know, and like back then I was shoeing jumper, mostly dressage and, and some jump jumpers. Uh, you know, once my, my business kind of evolved into more uh, therapeutic, like working at a layup and rehab facility for sport horses, that was one of the number one things to get those horses back in the, the ring, you know, or back to work was getting those hind feet back underneath the legs because everything had gone awry. Everything that would come. Just being Well, nice you'd always too. see that. The, the hind feet were, they'd gone awry. The hoof capsules have twisted laterally. Yep. It's, it's the way hind hoof capsules tend to want to go is laterally. And so when you can figure out how to move them back underneath that bony column, it's a game changer for those horses. So that was a huge thing. Well, another thing that happened at that first Calgary was Jim Keith provided rulers, bifold brass rulers for all the, the novice, or not novice, all the rookies. Sweet little thing. It's only like a, it's not as big as like the other ones. It doesn't go to like, I think yeah. when it's folded, it's only like 10 and a half. So it goes to like 21 inches maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think they are 10 and a half. And is that the one with the little No, it didn't have a hook. Okay. But it, it's a shorter version of a bifold. It's it's narrower too, but it was sweet, and I didn't have a good one, so I went to using that Jim Keith ruler, and I loved it. Uh, well, I that first year at Calgary, I got zeros on all my dimension scores, uh, and I figured it had a lot to do with not getting done with enough time to really get things checked and sorted out. So the next year, I got me a Coke Forge, and I started really working on my timing and working at those faster paces and I got to where I could have my shoes cold you know and nails checked and all that with a few minutes to go and you know checking dimensions like crazy well the next year second year at Calgary zeros on all my dimensions and I'm starting to like get like some of the highest forging scores in some classes I'm you know because they'd bring out the paperwork and you'd look and you could compare like oh I got this on forging well dang that's the highest score out of everyone here oh my flat's you know, like the highest yeah. flat score, like boom, boom, boom. And then this big old goose egg on dimensions. Year three rolls around and we're a couple days into it. And, you know, by now me and John McNerney are great friends. And we happen to run over there to look at the shoe scores together. And, and uh, I'm on the team now. <laughs> I'm on the AFT now. So six. And uh, John looks he's like dude you're killing it in all the categories and getting zero still on dimensions he's like i watched your go like, you had that old measured a hundred times he's like what in the hell is going on i go i don't get it john i don't know and he goes give me your ruler so i hand john my ruler and he butts him up against the wall and he goes your your ruler is three millimeters off <laughs> millimeters oh, was the cutoff like you know yeah. On, you know like a <laughs> yeah go yeah. no go and once you hit three that's zero dude you're done Fuck. <laughs> three years of calgary <laughs> was impossible for me to make the top 10 because i got zeros on all my dimensions for being dumb and not everything <laughs> my calculation on my measuring device what a kick in the nuts <laughs> yeah you never you never think to like re-zero no. your ruler make sure i sure as hell do now though <laughs> Yeah. everything now oh, yeah. and i i yeah. figured out i asked marshall i was like let's talk about our newest sponsor of forge and brains podcast yukon forge 
If you're a fan of the show, then you've probably already heard the interview we did with John McNerney and all the badass things he's accomplished in his career, as well as the type of character this man has. John's graciously offering you guys 10% off on anything you order when you go to www.yukonforge.com and use code BRAINS at checkout. On his website, you'll find he has a variety of high-quality, hand-built tools made by him personally. His hoof knives are some of the best on the market. All his tongs are forged from 4140 steel to hold up to whatever you're grabbing and holding. John's been developing a new hammer out of 4140 steel that looks pretty dang sick, and I can't wait to try one. His fullers are handmade from S7, and I personally know of some that have withstood the years of hammer blows. Also, a new and unique tool John has developed is the propane nut. There's nothing worse than stripping out your propane regulator from not having the right tool. The Yukon Forge propane nut relate replaces whatever you had been using for a simple tool that you can tighten and loosen with your fingertips with ease. So go to www.yukonforge.com and use code BRAINS for 10% off your order. That's a hell of a deal, my friends. How do they measure in the judge's room? And so he told me how they have a little 90-degree corner that they stick everything in and they measure off of that. And so I got me a steel, I cut out a little steel 90-degree corner out of sheet metal. Uh, and I, I, use, I started taking that everywhere with me. And I'd write my dimensions. I'd make straight-edge lines for all my dimensions, length and width. I'd measure everything in the box. And then, boom, that next year I started placing. You know, and I, that's when I started getting my 11th places and stuff. And, and uh, man, the, the stuff I saw at Calgary, I saw some of the most amazing things uh, Man, some of the shoeing job. Jim Blurton did a shoeing job in the top ten one time, a front end. It was picture perfect. Like it was so beautiful. I remember like thinking that's probably the best job I've ever seen, and it was just done in an hour. Yeah. You know, with all the pressure in the world on him, and he ended up that year. It yeah. sucked. Uh, it sucked that he didn't win with that. I think he won that go, and then didn't do as well on the Heinz or something, but. Then uh, Darren Bazin, man, I saw some of Darren Bazin's top 10 goes. Like the last time he won the world, me and my, my wife Nicole sat there at his anvil or at his forge and watched that go. And uh, Darren was, I mean, he was a man on fire. He was done with his trim, like lickety split, he had his shoes knocked out. He had 20 minutes to nail and finish. Damn, that's time. And I, <laughs> I mean, whoops, there but like That's proper a lot like. of time and then did the turn around did the same thing in the top five go and and so after that nicole like whenever i'd be at a contest and she'd be at home she'd she'd text me like the day of the shoe and go like baz you know oh, go like that and he, <laughs> he would actually take like he would just be going like a like a sewing machine just bah, 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 bah. and then suddenly he would just stop and go when he was at the forge, he would just take these really intentional deep breaths in and out, in and out to get his oxygen up. And then he would just go back. To it. And I yeah. learned a lot because I always cramped up really bad. At, and I learned later it has a lot to do with your blood oxygen level, especially at high altitude, you know, yep. and, and we all have that tendency of tightening up and doing shallow breathing when we're nervous. So right. I learned a ton from that. Uh, you know, that Bodhi mentioned David Verini's um, 
top five job that he did the one year that he won the world. Uh, I was standing next to David when his horse went back behind that curtain to get judged. And that, it was one of the most shocking things I've seen, one of the most blatant. Uh, they, they skipped over his horse. And I, I hate to say it, but it almost seemed intentional. Like it's supposed to be first come, first judge. And he had a, a real, um, he had like a paint horse. I think it was a buckskin and white type horse, like really stood out. And it went in and it got skipped and then it got skipped again. And I mean, he was fixing to come on court watching because we're watching it on the Jumbotron. And he was a very emotional yeah. guy, like very emotional. Uh, he got hot, man. He, he turned as red as his hair. And I, I was like, dude, you don't have much time left. I go, there's no time to be mad right now. I go, you need to settle down, you know, step in there and do what you can do. Like just settle down though. And he, he did, man. He got under there, nailed the, Bodie said it was two minutes a foot. I think it was a minute a foot. Damn. It's and, cooking. And, and just put every nail in just right where it needed to go. Clenched it up, finished it up, done at the whistle. I went and picked up the feet when it went back behind the, you know, when it went back, when it was judged and went back to the pin and it was solid nine and a half nail and finish both feet. Jeez. Incredible. And I mean, that was a plan. I told him after that, I said, dude, there was, there was a couple of years I didn't have much stomach for you and, and how emotional you were and stuff. But I go, you've really matured and became, you know, a salty, badass you know like i have so much respect for you now and and we've become friends over the years i have so much respect for that guy uh it's amazing he's one of those that's like a phenomenal horseshoer you know as well as as competitor you, you had mentioned earlier and when we first started talking you'd said something about uh you know that I'm, I'm respected for my shoeing along with my competition shoeing and i i do want to point out that there's never been a distinction between those two for me to me, uh, I've shot every horse I've had the opportunity to get under like I was at a contest, whether it's a dink that wants to take my head off or not. Like I'm, I'm giving it the best job I can in that time frame I'm allowed. And that's been a, a huge, uh, that's been a huge advantage to me as a competitor because I'm, I'm a classic example of I, I can only do what I practice. Because there's always... Well, and that's, that's the guy that like poor went to, to Florida, you know, like that's the story. It always sticks in my head is poor told him like, you're not a believer. This isn't, this isn't your, your full on thing where I think that's one of my favorite things. When I see like a shoe list that you come out with, it's like a shoe list. You're like, that's a Monday. That's like, like, Oh, that's a high, low horse. That's, this is the horse that he was wanting you to try to like accomplish here. Like it was, a, it's a very a very realistic list. You know, and I hate to say that to give people fuel, like anti-competition. No. People, and but. I've, I've always had a problem as a competitor with, with the door knocker shoes or the wall hanger shoes that are just perfectly symmetrical and fit in the box. And, and especially the more I learned about the hoof and, and really looked at what a hoof is, they're not symmetrical and they're not, you know, perfectly balanced and the quarters yeah. are not across from each other. And, and I've also noticed being on teams with guys like really, really good handy guys, they make amazing shoes to turn in. And then when they got to make them for the foot, they have to make it a keg shoe and then fit it. You know, where me always made throughout my yeah. career, uh, I learned to just make that horse's foot, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I learned it from yeah. working with guys like Craig and Bob Marshall. And, you know, Bob Marshall was a huge influence on me. 
I met him early. Like I say, he spent a year on doing bad habits. Uh, and then he turned me on to Dallas Morgan when Dallas moved into my area. You know, I, like I said, I was working like seven days a week back then so I could ride with Dirk Ballard. Then I met Dallas every day in the week, you know, so I had to figure out how to fit him in or, you know, so I could jump in the truck with him. There's times I, I would just drive out there after work. He, he lived over an hour away. I'd drive out there, you know, seven, eight at night because he told me, hey, come on, we're going to get in the shop. And there's many a times I'd show up, his wife would meet me at the door and be like, sorry, Dallas can't play today. <laughs> I'd get in the truck and drive back home, you know. That's where we just had like a standing day, like, oh, just show up Tuesday, you know, and I'd show up Tuesday and she'd be like, nope. Yep. We're having dinner tonight. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. See you later. But man, it, it's, uh, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface, but, but as far as like, no, we, we'll, we'll have to do a part two with you for sure. Cause I think like there's, there's a lot more to like, I feel like we just scratched like the beginning of history with oh, it. Yeah. And so it's like, there's a lot more to catch up yep. to modern day. Yeah. I mean, shoot stories, uh, Bill Poor, you know, the year Bill won the world, we were on the team. That was 07 AFA team. And uh, I'd, I'd got shot in the hand with a 10 millimeter chunk of shrapnel 14 days before the contest. And it, it went through the, the web of my hand. It went in next to the uh, metacarpal there. And then it, it traveled downward into the palm of my hand underneath the thumb. And it, it cut the entire web of my hand apart. It was a, a razor sharp pyramid shaped 10 millimeter projectile. And it cut an artery on the way in. Shit. And uh, immediately I was spraying blood, a, a three quarter inch stream of blood, you know, six feet away. It didn't, it didn't pulsate. It was a steady stream. It was literally like you just turned the garden hose on, you know, and, um, it, it, it was, it was shocking to see it was at Bob Medeiros's house and, and, uh, Bob was, Bob was pretty tuned up. We'd been, we'd been having a few and, and, uh, my buddy that, that had the hammer break that, that shot me, he was running. When I showed him, he started running around like a chicken with his head cut off, just <laughs> cursing up a storm, just running circles. And I was like, I'm, I, I'm holding my hand as tight as I can, trying to slow this blood down. And I'm like, dude, you need to settle down, get my wallet, get my phone out of my toolbox and let's go. And Bob's like, no, nah, you're good. He goes, I'm going to go in the house, and get some tweezers, some whiskey and a tampon, and we're going to get you sorted out. We'll dig it out. And he, he's telling me stories about shrapnel he's dug out of himself. And I mean, his sidewalk <laughs> red, like, six feet away from me and i'm just like okay bob how far away is the hospital he's like oh about an hour and i'm like i'm thinking man i just watched they, they said uh, the human body has a gallon of blood in it and i'm thinking like i could fill up a milk jug in about probably 20 seconds right now if i if i just let her rip and and the hospital's oh, yeah. an hour away and he's wanting to go get tweezers and stick them in my hand right now no and so he either. goes in the house and I'm like, let's go. And so we jump in the truck, we <laughs> jump in the truck and, and I'm like, you know where that hospital is? And he's like, no, I'm like, oh man, oh God, you know, we didn't have GPS on the phone at that this point. The end. Stuff. And, uh, I'm thinking like, I need to call Nicole and tell her I love her. Cause this might be the last chance I have, you know, but I can't let go of my hand or I'm going to bleed out. <laughs> 
and so we get to the doctor, we get to the hospital, and it's a big old mess. They're they're wanting all this information, and it turns out later it was so they could insurance could sue whoever was swinging the hammer, whoever made the hammer, and whoever owned the property. Yeah. And so I had to lie like a like a dog to get get my buddies all through that one, you know, because I'm friends with all three parties: yep. the maker, the owner, and the and the guy with the property. So yeah. I had to turn it, I had to turn it all around to keep my buddies from getting sued by my insurance. Well, uh, we get there and they take x-rays and they find it and they're like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta refer you to hand surgery. It's going to be a few days. I'm like, no way. We, I got a, I got a big deal coming up here in 14 days. I need to start healing right now. He's like, you ain't gonna be able to move that hand in 14 days. I says, well, we got to try. And, and so we go back and forth. And finally, he's like, your hand, I'll probably cripple your hand if I start digging around in there with all the nerves and everything. He's like, it can paralyze your hand. I said, that's a risk I'm willing to take. I said, I'll wow. sign a waiver, whatever we got to do. And so I talk him into it, man. It takes him like 20 minutes to dig this thing out. And I mean, he's he's like quitting on me. My buddy's turning green. It's a mess. And finally, man, I, I had to keep pumping the doctor up because he kept trying to quit, man. He was like, We're, I'm going to mess your hand up. I can't get it. Come on, doc. <laughs> I finally, finally got him through it, and we got it out. And I took 13. He said, your best bet is don't move that hand for as long as possible. Let those muscles heal back together. So I took as long as I could. And, and like a couple of days before it's time to leave for Calgary, I had to get to work, get horses done. Jason Harmison came up, you know, gave me a couple of days. We got a bunch of horses done. And uh, once uh, the day before I left, I practiced our team shoes. You know, here, here I went, you know, two weeks not doing any of the individual stuff. And I was like, my one and only thing is the team. That's all that matters. So I, I wanted to make sure I could make draft shoes. And uh, I, Todd was our, our alternate that year. He was the only one. He was the first call I made after I told my wife about it. I called Todd and said, man, get – get ready just in case. If I, if I can't do my job a hundred percent, you got to step in. And, uh, so when we got to Calgary, I was like, I can at least do that team class. I end up doing everything. And, and John McNerney gave me a nice little piece of advice. He, he said, you know, the best version of Bill Poor is a pissed off Bill Poor. He said, right before the go, right before the whistle, lean over and tell him that everybody thinks he's a joke. And that everybody says he's just making it on his daddy's coattails. Oh, shit. And so I'm going to strike for Bill and our, our deal. And he also, he's the one that told us, like, you guys got to let Bill go first, get Bill out of the mix, get him on the lead rope. And, and I was like, all right. So we started practicing that way, and it was working real good. And Bill liked it, too. So I lean over to Bill right before the whistle, and I tell him what John said. And he's like, who said that? I'm like, everybody's saying it. He's like, Everybody. his bottom lip and his head starts bobbing like a chicken. And he says, partner, he goes, you ready to three heat this shoe? And I said, yes, sir, Bill. And we knocked his shoe out in three heats, heel cocked, fullered, and clipped. And he went and burned it on and threw it in the vise and rasped it up, nailed it up, and was done. It's badass. You had plenty of time. Plenty of time. I, was, I called John later. I'm like, you're a genius. That worked. <laughs> yeah. He did so much Bill, you know, that's what he figured out is if you can get Bill mad, oh, look out. Look out, man. All you <laughs> got to do is tell him he can't, and he will find a way, and he can. And that, that was such an amazing go. We won that. Uh, Bill ended up winning. They talked about that uh, double 
a pair of workhorse shoes with double caulkins and welded on toe bars. A couple people have mentioned that on, on the bill was first on yeah. one, second on the other. Uh, I was in there on that. I, I placed on both of them pretty well. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, uh, those were such fun times at Calgary. That was such an amazing contest, amazing stuff to see. Awesome people. Oh man, that was something else. Uh, it, it was one of the things I, I definitely uh, cherish all that time there. I, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't be that guy that was drunk walking around there all the time. You know, and I'm not saying it kept me from doing better than I could have, but, you know, it it, it was fun. It, it is what it was, but uh, it, it's probably a little easier to compete without throwing up before you go because you're alcohol poisoned, you know. <laughs> Austin, probably Austin probably be, so. Austin would be the guy puking from nerves and I'd be the guy puking from alcohol poisoning right you nervous too yeah yeah I'm nervous too. I never thought about back then was what the position I was probably putting my teammates in like wondering am I going to be able to suck it up and you know what I mean like just not like it seemed like yeah. they all, you know, had confidence in me and stuff. But I think back now, there's probably times where they were like, they were probably oh, like, man, is this old coon's going to be able to, you know, pull it, pull it together after up checking and all. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Nervous yeah, moment. I so good for my teammates all the time. Uh, so I, I do have some regrets about the way I, I handled myself at some of those things. And, you know, there, there was a clinic, me and Craig judged uh, Edgewood together one year. Uh, he had asked me to do it, and I'd, I'd judge for the WCB several times. And when Craig asked me to do Edgewood, I, I says, I got one condition, and he's like, what's that? I go, you got to do it with me. And I just I just wanted to judge with Craig to see where Craig was at and where I was at, you know, because I'd learned so much from him. I, I gained so much from him, but I, I really wanted to check myself against him. And he, he was like, all right, you, yeah. you do the shoes, you know, you come up with the specimens and all that, and I'll just judge with you. So... We did that, and and we did the deal where we did the clinic the day before, like everybody. Was that in came 2014? The clinic, you know, and I had a I had a three eighths yep. by one patent bar in there, uh, and that was something I'd I'd really enjoyed making patent bars, practical shoe, you know, with a good application, but very difficult. And you, you had know, that five eighths concave caulkin wedge. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, were you, you at that one, Gaff? I got my first best shot foot bucket from you at that one. Oh dang man. <laughs> good man well i know yeah. it was legit as soon as you said that You're patent welcome. bar i remembered exactly which one that was yeah that so so we did that clinic deal man and and in typical drunken travis coon's form man i drank on I drank the night before I left. I was up in the shop late drinking, barely slept, got on a plane, drank on the plane. Uh, Chris picked me up at the airport. And we went to a bar and drank before. And then I get there to do the clinic, and, and here's Dusty. He's got this big, big client of his came in with the RV with the big old Willie Nelson oh, tour bus. And uh, Dusty's like, hey, I know you like this crown. And he, he pours me a, a red Solo cup full of crown with a couple little pieces of ice in it, you know, and that was the final nail in the coffin. Man, I drank that thing and I was just like done. And then me and Craig get up there and start doing the clinic. And uh, I, I'll never forget that one. I, I was 
conscious enough to know that I was not doing a good clinic and I was not saying what I needed to say and I was not hitting where I needed to hit. And I mean, it just was a mess. And then, you know, I, I don't even think, I, I think the weld slipped and everything. Like it was just a mess. Because oh, everybody wanted to see that patent bar, you know, because there's oh, no yeah. pigs and all that. Oh, yeah. And I had that thing down. I could make that shoe like in 20 minutes. Oh, Not that nice. I was, I was <laughs> stuck in the mud, man. And I was conscious enough to know it. And I was just dying there in front of everybody. And I felt so bad. And, and then Craig saved me because... Uh, he goes, why don't you do that concave shoe? And he handed me some concave and then it was like, okay, man, like I, I've done, I've shot every horse I've shot in my life with concave dang near. So that kind of like brought me back to my center and I was able to do a good, good bit of a clinic on that concave shoe. And, uh, you know, kind of rescued me and bailed me out. Plus I sobered up a hair during that, but that was one of them things that I regret so bad because people left their home a day early uh, people, you know, left their families a day early to come watch that mess. Uh, anybody out there that was there for that and, and, you know, was disappointed in that, that clown show. Like I've told people every clinic I've done since then, if, if you were part of that and you got short sheeted, like, let me know, I'll do you a free clinic someday. Like <laughs> you buy a ticket, like whatever you want, come ride with me, uh, anything to make it up. Cause that, that was unacceptable. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. You heard it here now. You you use code brains and get a hold of Travis, and you'll get yourself a free clinic. Well, offers out there, and, and hopefully, you know, young bucks will learn from my mistakes and not, not put yourself in that position. Oh man, that was it happens. So, but money taught me that the first time I went to go do a clinic. He like messaged me. He's like, "I'm just letting you know." Don't get fucked up the first night. He's like, you can get fucked up the second and third. He's like, first night, keep your shit together. He's yeah. Like, so, yeah, I was like, okay, that's solid advice. I'm really glad you mentioned that name because that's something I definitely don't want to leave this this part one segment, uh, or or maybe it's part two of part one. I don't want to leave this without talking about money because uh, I, I I listened to your podcast you did with money. And I was so proud of what he said and did in that podcast. That, that is like an epic podcast. I've listened to it like two or three times now. Every person that is a helper, every person that's in shoeing school, like that should be required listening. He, he tells you everything you need to learn to go from a knucklehead that nobody will let ride in their truck to the guy or the girl that everybody wants to ride in their truck. He gives you, he breaks it down and gives you the keys to success in this trade in that short mm -hmm. little podcast. And I mean, it's motivational, like just the demeanor and the way Chris presented it. Like I was pumped when I got done listening to that. I was like, man, sign me up. I'm ready to go. You know, and yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> he talked about some of the things that really hit home was like talking about his days riding with Mike Stone. And he was, he had that mentality. This is this guy's business that he worked hard to earn. These are his clients. And who am I to get in there and mess that up? You know, like, I'm not going to do anything he don't tell me to do that he don't think I'm ready for. Like, that is so good because I've had so many people ride with me that just, they might be good that first day, that second day. And eventually, man, they just come in and put their muddy boots up on your couch, you know, like start stomping around like Rick James, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
so yeah, that, that was a super cool podcast. And I, I don't think, unless it was in some of the parts where I couldn't hear audio, did, did he tell the story how he got that name? I think he, I think he did tell it in that, if he didn't tell in that first one, I think he told it in one oh. of the team ones. So we, we've done a couple, we've done a few, I think a few of them now with money, but yeah, I don't think no, yeah, cause he, cause it was from a nope. contest though. Huh? Nope. Nope. Cause I did you, I, oh, I thought tell it was. Yeah. The world needs yeah. to know the truth. <laughs> so, so Craig used to call him the romantic Hispanic. That was his nickname. Oh boy. <laughs> and I thought it was a great nickname. It rolled off the tongue well. And I mean, Craig, would, like he it. would say it on the mic, you know, at the WCBs. And, you know, Chris was a young guy then, you know, barely of drinking age. And, and uh, he came down to my house. He wanted to spend some time shoeing with me and working in the forge. And we were going to make tool and fuller blocks, you know, like I was the guy that had tool and fuller stuff going. Uh, and they were getting more and more. Uh, specimens more tns specimens and contests so chris come down and we had a real good time man we worked hard worked late and uh i'll never forget he was at the coke fire getting the heat and i said something about the romantic hispanic and it just got dead silent or no i'm sorry he was on the ammo working on a roadster he's working away i said romantic hispanic and the hammering just stopped i was <laughs> at the fire. that's right and it just was quiet and i turned around looked over my shoulder and he's just looking down Shoes hot. He's not hit. I'm like, what's wrong? He goes, you know, bro, I never liked that nickname. <laughs> I said, you don't like that nickname? And he goes, hell no. <laughs> and I said, oh, shoot, man. I'm sorry. I thought you did. I've been, man, I felt bad. You know, I felt legitimately bad because it was like, he was, serious. He was not yeah. happy. Yeah. And I says, well, I'll come up with a new one for you. And I, by the time I was done getting that heat, I said, how do you feel about Money Madrid? He goes, I like that, bro. <laughs> you sound just like him. <laughs> I once left him a voicemail in his voice, and he I think he might have checked it late at night after having a few. And he, he told me, he was like, man, when the hell did I call myself and leave that voicemail? Me and him had such good times together, man. I, uh, what a, what an honor and a privilege it was watching Chris, you know, become who he is now. Like not, not even just in the, the horseshoe world, but the man that he is, uh, what a, what a good man. It's cool. And I, I, he ain't oh man, I, there's no stopping. He's still rolling. There's no stopping <laughs> still... him. He'll only stop when he's ready to stop. Nope. You know, and it's incredible. Oh yeah. So the good thing about him. And then he'll go on to something else and be the man of that. Exactly, too. man. My my money is always on money. Always. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah. Well, man, let's let's get your Mount Rush. I got I got about five percent okay. battery left here. Let's do your Mount Rushmore and we'll call this part one. Cool. Um so there's a lot of thought went into this. I've been thinking about this since I heard you guys were doing that. And uh you know, it, it, my Mount Rushmore could easily be as long as of that list of two minutes of names I read to you. But <laughs> what I boiled it down to was I, I decided it needs to be a horseshoe or Mount Rushmore. You know, like I'm just putting horseshoers on there. And, and it had a huge impact on me. And, I, you know, uh, I cut it down to eight people. <laughs> it's a big Mount Rushmore. <laughs> You know, and I, I know our real Mount Rushmore is going to grow because one of these days they're going to put President Trump on there. They better. Let's hope. 
Might all be dead by then, but he'll be on there. My money's on that. Where is, where is my Mount Rushmore? Oh, here it is. Okay. My dad, Keith Coons. He's on there, you know, greatest greatest and finest horseman I've ever known. And one heck of a horseshoer and, and hoof trimmer, you know, basically self-taught, you know, very little, very little help from other people. But I mean, really knows what feet need to look like and how to get them there. Uh, Bob Marshall, you know, who stepped in and really, you know, when I was, when all I was capable of doing was turning a heel in a hardy hole, then I met Bob Marshall. And uh, man, talk about a, an amazing experience, you know, and, and just I have the utmost respect for him. And, and he's the greatest teacher. He's the greatest teacher of horseshoeing skill I've ever seen. He could teach a monkey. I've and heard then, that before. Yep. And through Bob and, and mechanics, like he got me focused on mechanics at a young age. And, and I think that's one of my, my fortes now is, is being able to identify body mechanics and how to improve them and, you know, how to build good habits because of my time with Bob. And Bob hooked me up with Dallas, Bob hooked me up with Dallas Morgan. And uh, that was a big game changer. Dallas gave me so much more than I was ready for. Took me along, took me under his wing. To this day, one of the best friends I've ever had. I love him like a brother. Uh, Jim Poor. Jim Poor has to be on my Mount Rushmore because I saw what that man can do with, with steel and with horses' feet, and he's one of the finest horseshoers God ever created. Craig Turnka. Craig, Craig really, like, got me and polished. Like, he polished this turd pretty good. Like, he took a lot of that other stuff I learned and was like, here's how you put it together. Um, and then Jim Quick, Jim Quick's on my Mount Rushmore because same thing, man. He's an amazing horseshoer. He he stuck to the he he kept competing when he didn't need to. Uh, I, I think for benefit of me and, and guys like Chris Madrid and stuff, like Jim hung in there a lot longer than he needed to just to kind of show us the way. Roy Bloom, Roy Bloom uh, had a huge impact on me as our team manager on the AFT. I wrote Roy a letter after he stepped down, or after we stepped off the AFT and went to the WCB team. I wrote him a letter and said that I learned more about shoeing feet and trimming feet from him, having never seen him touch a pair. Just, just the observations Roy would give us, and the deep thought he'd put into everything, like amazing, and a great man. Jay Sharp, I got to tell you guys Jay Sharp stories, man. I got so many great ones someday. But Jay Sharp had a huge impact on me, getting to be friends with him and, and the wisdom and advice he'd give me. Shane Carter, you know, I talked a lot about Shane earlier. I think he's one of the best horseshoers on the earth. Uh, John McNerney, a great friend, a great mentor, uh, a brother, uh, a leader, a, a guy who helped kind of bring me back to the Lord. Uh, and when my life was a mess, that dude was praying for me. He's an amazing man. And finally, Chris Madrid, my well, brother. Can't say enough about him. Like I, I think he's uh, he's the future still, you know. And he's he's years now into yeah. being the future, and, and he's still the future. And there's a lot of people discount him and say, oh well, you know, maybe it's moved on a little beyond where he's at. No way, dude. That guy hasn't even reached his full potential yet. We he's all go through ups up. and downs. You know, he, he had a rough go at Edgewood and then turned around and was like almost reserve world champion. You know, yeah, like it's badass. He yep. he he is he's the real deal. 
Fuck yeah. So that, that's my. No, that is a that is a rock star list right there. That a lot is. of heavy hitters. Man, that is that's. I think this is a great place, man. It's uh, we'll call this part one because I I still want to hear the rest of your stories and the rest of what you have thoughts on where our industry is. A lot right of now. thoughts on all that. So, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I. Th- I think well, it'd in be business to too, you know, there's been a lot of the podcasts I've listened to where you guys have said yep. you've got the one group of people that only want to hear from competitors and the other group wants to hear from guys shoeing high level horses. Well, I've done them both, man. I've been blessed. I've, I've heard some amazing outfits yep. and I still do. I've got two clients now. Which is unreal to me. Business is that. Yeah, no, I think it would be great to have people get an insight to that and how you can make your life work and being a competitor, have a family, everything. So it's a good thing for people to hear and get some some motivation and some insight how to push that yeah. into their lives. I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to do this yeah, with us, man. Anytime, guys. It's awesome. it a pleasure. It's fun. Yeah. Glad, glad you guys were uh, glad you guys are doing this. Well, thank you. Man. Yeah, thanks it. a lot. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Forging Brains. And be ready for Travis's hey, and part two. And Halloween, man. This is thanks a spook, spooktastic, uh, spooktastic. It is Halloween, yeah. Fantastic episode. Yep. <laughs> it is. Spooky. <laughs> spooktastic. There you go treating right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It's time to go. Time to go hunting. What is <laughs> time? Let's talk about our newest sponsor of Forge and Brains podcast, Yukon Forge. If you're a fan of the show, then you've probably already heard the interview we did with John McNerney and all the badass things he's accomplished in his career, as well as the type of character this man has. John's graciously offering you guys 10% off on anything you order when you go to www.yukonforge.com and use code BRAINS at checkout. On his website, you'll find he has a variety of high-quality, hand-built tools made by him personally. His hoof knives are some of the best on the market. All his tongs are forged from 4140 steel to hold up to whatever you're grabbing and holding. John's been developing a new hammer out of 4140 steel that looks pretty dang sick, and I can't wait to try one. His fullers are handmade from S7, and I personally know of some that have withstood the years of hammer blows. Also, a new and unique tool John has developed is the propane nut. There's nothing worse than stripping out your propane regulator from not having the right tool. The Yukon Forge propane nut replaces whatever you had been using for a simple tool that you can tighten and loosen with your fingertips with ease. So go to www yukonforge.com and use code brains for 10% off your order that's a hell of a deal my friends our great friends over at ferry box have been supporting us on forging brains for a while now since the time that they have sponsored the show we have received many great products that i wouldn't have thought about buying or because i was being a tight ass but they were sent to me in their subscription box, and now I use those products in my day-to-day practice. Each box is sent bi-monthly, and in those boxes is an array 
of the top tools and products that have been tested by the greats in our industry. So go to www.fairybox.com and use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's order. You won't be disappointed. I'll tell you that. Going to take a little minute to talk about some of our sponsors for the show. One of the largest fairy supply stores in the world is stepping up for Forging Brains podcast to help you guys by sending you on your way with a cool gift when you use the code BRAINS at checkout. Wellshod carries so many different supplies throughout their warehouse that honestly we could probably do a whole podcast just talking about all the different supplies, tools, anvils, all sorts of products that they carry throughout their warehouse. It's insane. If you guys haven't been there, you should put it on the list to go check them out just to go see them, but also to go buy some stuff too. Their recent products they've been making in-house is anvils. They're producing the Scott anvils as well as the new Scott Eden's 200-pound anvil. I believe they've also been doing the Cliff Carroll anvils for some time as well. And John Harshbarger talked about that in his episode previously on Forging Brains podcast. So when you guys go to order with Wellshod, either online or on the telephone, use code BRAINS they'll hook you up with a free product in your order. A little surprise, surprise gift. We're happy to be working with Wellshod because they are invested in this trade, the same as the rest of us, and not just there for profits and money. Plus, I don't know how you can beat that $10 flat shipping they always have. Like, that's insane. Can't get a better deal than that. So either call them up on the telephone or go online at www.wellshod.com and when you go to check out on your order, use the code BRAINS and they'll hook you up with something cool in your order. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about working with Wellshot. This is going to be great. Let's take a minute and talk about another one of our sponsors, Farrier Box. I know you guys probably don't need that Christmas morning feel in the middle of the summer no more, but let's talk about how the subscription base service sets you up with the best of the best products each time you receive their box. Everything they send out is tested and used by elite farriers so it gets that stamp of approval every time it reaches your doorstep. I don't think there's anything else going on out there in the farrier world that's quite like farrier box at the moment so when you can get products each month every other month I guess that you're on the fence about getting They'll send it to you, and you'll have it at your disposal. Plus, you know, it's going to be handy stuff, so stuff that you're going to use. There's not something I've had that I haven't used yet, but to get a discount, use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's order. And that's a pretty good deal if you ask me. Let's get back to it. Brought to you by the World Championship Blacksmiths. We're so excited to have the Trinka family support what we're doing here. It is a huge part of the topics that we have on this podcast, and it's where we've gained a lot of community at, and exactly what they are. They are a community that supports education through competition. So if you were looking for a support system behind you on your journey of becoming a better farrier, go join up and go to an event. You will never regret it. And they've been nice enough to offer us a 10% off on their online store or call-in orders for everything besides competitions and membership. So go ahead them up, get some merch, and let some people know what you support. 
Thank you, guys. Barrier Box. First of all, we owe Ferry Box a huge thank you for being one of the first ones to jump on and support what we're doing here with the podcast. If you haven't heard about Ferry Box, it's a bi-monthly box that comes to your door, and it's filled with goods, kind of like the Chewy Box to your dogs, but this one's not filled with crap. She gets advice from the top guys of the industry and puts together a box with a theme. They aren't just a bunch of random items. They always have something where like some pieces of bar stock to practice for an upcoming contest with the punch or the fuller that you can use and fits that shoe. It's a great deal. She also throws in items that you wouldn't think of like good soaps, things to take care of yourself, make your truck smell good. Get on Barrier Box and use code BRAINS to check out, and you're going to get 25% off your first box. Are you are you signed up for Fort Worth? I want to take a moment to tell you guys about Wellshod, and not just that they carry every item you can think of from every brand, including from the little guys. You can get some Adam Farr punches, some Ben Sneer hammers. They pretty much got it all in the hard-to-beat $10 shipping. But I also want to take a moment to talk about John himself. You see the Wellshod name, at pretty much every single contest that you go to. And not only that, you see John himself there supporting what we do and investing his time. Like John's even jumped in the competition in his ring himself at some of the WCB contests. That speaks huge to me. And it also speaks huge that John wanted to support what we're doing with the podcast. They've agreed that if you guys use brains at checkout, they're going to put a little mystery item in the box for you. So go ahead and support them, what they're doing, and it helps support us. Because in all, we're all just one community. Uh, not yet.